Omnipotent Government, The Rise of the Total State and Total War. Written by Ludwig von Mises. Narrated by Million Quinteros. Preface. In dealing with the problems of social and economic policies, the social sciences consider only one question. Whether the measures suggested are really suited to bring about the effects sought by their authors, or whether they result in a state of affairs which, from the viewpoint of their supporters, is even more undesirable than the previous state which it was intended to alter. The economist does not substitute his own judgment about the desirability of ultimate ends for that of his fellow citizens. He merely asks whether the ends sought by nations, governments, political parties, and pressure groups can indeed be attained by the methods actually chosen for their realization. It is, to be sure, a thankless task. Most people are intolerant to any criticism of their social and economic tenets. They do not understand that the objections raised refer only to unsuitable methods and do not dispute the ultimate ends of their efforts. They are not prepared to admit the possibility that they might attain their ends more easily by following the economist's advice than by disregarding it. They call an enemy of their nation, race, or group anyone who ventures to criticize their cherished policies. This stubborn dogmatism is pernicious and one of the root causes of the present state of world affairs. An economist who asserts that minimum wage rates are not the appropriate means of raising the wage earner's standard of living is neither a labor baiter nor an enemy of the workers. On the contrary, in suggesting more suitable methods for the improvement of the wage earner's material well-being, he contributes as much as he can to a genuine promotion of their prosperity. To point out the advantages which everybody derives from the working of capitalism is not tantamount to defending the vested interests of the capitalists. An economist who 40 or 50 years ago advocated the preservation of the system of private property and free enterprise did not fight for the selfish class interests of the then rich. He wanted a free hand left to those unknown among his penniless contemporaries who had the ingenuity to develop all those new industries which today render the life of the common man more pleasant. Many pioneers of these industrial changes, it is true, became rich. But they acquired their wealth by supplying the public with motor cars, airplanes, radio sets, refrigerators, moving and talking pictures, and a variety of less spectacular but no less useful innovations. These new products were certainly not an achievement of offices and bureaucrats. Not a single technical improvement can be credited to the Soviets. The best that the Russians have achieved was to copy some of the improvements of the capitalists whom they continue to disparage. Mankind has not reached the stage of ultimate technological perfection. There is ample room for further progress and for further improvement of the standards of living. The creative and inventive spirit subsists notwithstanding all assertions to the contrary but it flourishes only where there is economic freedom. Neither is an economist who demonstrates that a nation, let us call it Thule, hurts its own essential interests in its conduct of foreign trade policies and in its dealings with domestic minority groups, a foe of Thule and its people. It is futile to call the critics of inappropriate policies names and to cast suspicion upon their motives. That might silence the voice of truth, but it cannot render inappropriate policies appropriate. The advocates of totalitarian control call the attitudes of their opponents negativism. They pretend that while they themselves are demanding the improvement of unsatisfactory conditions, the others are intent upon letting the evils endure. 
This is to judge all social questions from the viewpoint of narrow-minded bureaucrats. Only to bureaucrats can the idea occur that establishing new offices, promulgating new decrees, and increasing the number of government employees alone can be described as positive and beneficial measures, whereas everything else is passivity and quietism. The program of economic freedom is not negativistic. It aims positively at the establishment and preservation of the system of market economy based on private ownership of the means of production and free enterprise. It aims at free competition and at the sovereignty of the consumers. As the logical outcome of these demands, the true liberals are opposed to all endeavors to substitute government control for the operation of an unhampered market economy. Laissez-faire, laissez-passer does not mean let the evils last. On the contrary, it means do not interfere with the operation of the market because such interference must necessarily restrict output and make people poorer. It means, furthermore, do not abolish or cripple the capitalist system, which, in spite of all obstacles put in its way by governments and politicians, has raised the standard of living of the masses in an unprecedented way. Liberty is not, as the German precursors of Nazism asserted, a negative ideal. Whether a concept is presented in an affirmative or in a negative form is merely a question of idiom. Freedom from want is tantamount to the expression striving after a state of affairs under which people are better supplied with necessities. Freedom of speech is tantamount to a state of affairs under which everybody can say what he wants to say. At the bottom of all totalitarian doctrines lies the belief that the rulers are wiser and loftier than their subjects and that they therefore know better what benefits those ruled than they themselves. Werner Sombart, for many years a fanatical champion of Marxism, and later a no less fanatical advocate of Nazism, was bold enough to assert frankly that the Führer gets his orders from God, the supreme Führer of the universe, and that Führertum is a permanent revelation. Whoever admits this must, of course, stop questioning the expediency of government omnipotence. Those disagreeing with this theocratical justification of dictatorship claim for themselves the right to discuss freely the problems involved. They do not write state with a capital S. They do not shrink from analyzing the metaphysical notions of Hegelianism and Marxism. They reduce all this high-sounding oratory to the simple question, are the means suggested suitable to attain the end sought? In answering this question, they hope to render a service to the great majority of their fellow men. Signed, Ludwig von Mises, New York, January 1944. Acknowledgement I am grateful to the Rockefeller Foundation and to the National Bureau of Economic Research for grants which enabled me to undertake the study. Mr. Henry Hazlitt has helped me greatly with his criticism and suggestions and by editing the whole manuscript. Mr. Arthur Goodman has advised me in linguistic and stylistic problems. Mr. Eugene Davidson of Yale University Press has assisted me in many ways. The responsibility for all opinions expressed is, of course, exclusively my own. Introduction Number 1 The essential point in the plans of the German National Socialist Workers' Party is the conquest of Lebensraum for the Germans i.e. a territory so large and rich in natural resources that they could live in economic self-sufficiency at a standard not lower than that of any other nation. 
It is obvious that this program, which challenges and threatens all other nations, cannot be realized except through the establishment of German world hegemony. The distinctive mark of Nazism is not socialism or totalitarianism or nationalism. In all nations today, the progressives are eager to substitute socialism for capitalism. While fighting the German aggressors, Great Britain and the United States are step by step adopting the German pattern of socialism. Public opinion in both countries is fully convinced that government all-round control of business is inevitable in time of war, and many eminent politicians and millions of voters are firmly resolved to keep socialism after the war as a permanent new social order. Neither are dictatorship and violent oppression of dissenters peculiar features of Nazism. They are the Soviet mode of government, and as such, advocated all over the world by the numerous friends of present-day Russia. Nationalism, an outcome of government interference with business, as will be shown in this book, determines in our age the foreign policy of every nation. What characterizes the Nazis as such is their special kind of nationalism, the striving for Lebensraum. This Nazi goal does not differ in principle from the aims of the earlier German nationalists, whose most radical group called themselves in the thirty years preceding the First World War Aldeutsch, Pan-Germans. It was this ambition which pushed the Kaiser's Germany into the First World War, and twenty-five years later kindled the Second World War. The Lebensraum program cannot be traced back to early German ideologies or to precedents in German history of the last five hundred years. Germany had its chauvinists, as all other nations had, but chauvinism is not nationalism. Chauvinism is the overvaluation of one's own nation's achievements and qualities, and the disparagement of other nations. In itself, it does not result in any action. Nationalism, on the other hand, is a blueprint for political and military action, and the attempt to realize these plans. German history, like the history of other nations, is the record of princes eager for conquest. But these emperors, kings, and dukes wanted to acquire wealth and power for themselves and for their kin, not Lebensraum for their nation. German aggressive nationalism is a phenomenon of the last sixty years. It developed out of modern economic conditions and economic policies. Neither should nationalism be confused with a striving for popular government, national self-determination, and political autonomy. When the German nineteenth-century liberals aimed at a substitution of a democratic government of the whole German nation for the tyrannical rule of thirty-odd princes, they did not harbor any hostile designs against other nations. They wanted to get rid of despotism and to establish parliamentary government. They did not thirst for conquest and territorial expansion. They did not intend to incorporate into the German state of their dreams the Polish and Italian territories which their princes had conquered. On the contrary, they sympathized with the aspirations of the Polish and the Italian liberals to establish independent Polish and Italian democracies. They were eager to promote the welfare of the German nation, but they did not believe that oppression of foreign nations and inflicting harm on foreigners best served their own nation. Neither is nationalism identical with patriotism. Patriotism is the zeal for one's own nation's welfare, flowering, and freedom. Nationalism is one of the various methods proposed for the attainment of these ends, but the liberals contend that the means recommended by nationalism are inappropriate. And that their application would not only not realize the ends sought, but on the contrary, must result in disaster for the nation. The liberals too are patriots, but their opinions with regard to the right ways toward national prosperity and greatness radically differ from those of the nationalists. They recommend free trade, international division of labor, goodwill, and peace among nations, 
not for the sake of foreigners, but for the promotion of happiness of their own nation. It is the aim of nationalism to promote the well-being of the whole nation or of some groups of its citizens by inflicting harm on foreigners. The outstanding method of modern nationalism is discrimination against foreigners in the economic sphere. Foreign goods are excluded from the domestic market or admitted only after the payment of an import duty. Foreign labor is barred from competition in the domestic labor market. Foreign capital is liable to confiscation. This economic nationalism must result in war whenever those injured believe that they are strong enough to brush away by armed violent action the measures detrimental to their own welfare. A nation's policy forms an integral whole. Foreign policy and domestic policy are closely linked together. They are but one system. They condition each other. Economic nationalism is the corollary of the present-day domestic policies of government interference with business and of national planning, as free trade was the complement of domestic economic freedom. There can be protectionism in a country with domestic free trade, but where there is no domestic free trade, protectionism is indispensable. A national government's might is limited to the territory subject to its sovereignty. It does not have the power to interfere directly with conditions abroad. Where there is free trade, foreign competition would, even in the short run, frustrate the aims sought by the various measures of government intervention with domestic business. When the domestic market is not to some extent insulated from foreign markets, there can be no question of government control. The further a nation goes on the road toward public regulation and regimentation, the more it is pushed toward economic isolation. International division of labor becomes suspect because it hinders the full use of national sovereignty. The trend toward autarky is essentially a trend of domestic economic policies. It is the outcome of the endeavor to make the state paramount in economic matters. Within a world of free trade and democracy, there are no incentives for war and conquest. In such a world, it is of no concern whether a nation's sovereignty stretches over a larger or a smaller territory. Its citizens cannot derive any advantage from the annexation of a province. Thus, territorial problems can be treated without bias and passion. It is not painful to be fair to other people's claims for self-determination. Free trade Great Britain freely granted dominion status, i.e. virtual autonomy and political independence, to the British settlements overseas, and ceded the Ionian Islands to Greece. Sweden did not venture military action to prevent the rupture of the bond linking Norway to Sweden. The royal house of Bernadotte lost its Norwegian crown. But for the individual citizen of Sweden, it was immaterial whether or not his king was sovereign of Norway too. In the days of liberalism, people could believe that plebiscites and the decisions of international tribunals would peacefully settle all disputes among nations. What was needed to safeguard peace was the overthrow of anti-liberal governments. Some wars and revolutions were still considered unavoidable in order to eliminate the last tyrants and to destroy some still existing trade walls. And if this goal were ever attained, no more causes for war would be left. Mankind would be in a position to devote all its efforts to the promotion of the general welfare. But while the humanitarians indulged in depicting the blessings of this liberal utopia, they did not realize that new ideologies were on the way to supplant liberalism and to shape a new order arousing antagonisms for which no peaceful solution could be found. They did not see it because they viewed these new mentalities and policies as the continuation and fulfillment of the essential tenets of liberalism. Anti-liberalism captured the popular mind disguised as true and genuine liberalism. 
Today, those styling themselves liberals are supporting programs entirely opposed to the tenets and doctrines of the old liberalism. They disparage private ownership of the means of production and the market economy, and are enthusiastic friends of totalitarian methods of economic management. They are striving for government omnipotence and hail every measure giving more power to officialdom and government agencies. They condemn as a reactionary and an economic royalist whoever does not share their predilection for regimentation. These self-styled liberals and progressives are honestly convinced that they are true Democrats. But their notions of democracy is just the opposite of that of the 19th century. They confuse democracy with socialism. They not only do not see that socialism and democracy are incompatible, but they believe that socialism alone means real democracy. Entangled in this error, they consider the Soviet system a variety of popular government. European governments and parliaments have been eager for more than 60 years to hamper the operation of the market, to interfere with business, and to cripple capitalism. They have blithely ignored the warnings of economists. They have erected trade barriers, they have fostered credit expansion and an easy money policy. They have taken recourse to price control, to minimum wage rates and to subsidies. They have transformed taxation into confiscation and expropriation. They have proclaimed heedless spending as the best method to increase wealth and welfare. But when the inevitable consequences of such policies, long before predicted by the economists, became more and more obvious, public opinion did not place the blame on these cherished policies. It indicted capitalism. In the eyes of the public, not anti-capitalistic policies, but capitalism is the root cause of economic depression, of unemployment, of inflation and rising prices, of monopoly and of waste, of social unrest and of war. The fateful error that frustrated all the endeavors to safeguard peace was precisely that people did not grasp the fact that only within a world of pure, perfect, and unhampered capitalism are there no incentives for aggression and conquest. President Wilson was guided by the idea that only autocratic governments are warlike, while democracies cannot derive any profit from conquest and therefore cling to peace. What President Wilson and the other founders of the League of Nations did not see was that this is valid only within a system of private ownership of the means of production, free enterprise, and unhampered market economy. Where there is no economic freedom, things are entirely different. In our world of Ataism, in which every nation is eager to insulate itself and to strive toward autarky, it is quite wrong to assert that no man can derive any gain from conquest. In this age of trade walls and migration barriers, of foreign exchange control, and of expropriation of foreign capital, there are ample incentives for war and conquest. Nearly every citizen has a material interest in the nullification of measures by which foreign governments may injure him. Nearly every citizen is therefore eager to see his own country mighty and powerful, because he expects personal advantage from its military might. The enlargement of the territory subject to the sovereignty of its own government means at least relief from the evils which a foreign government has inflicted upon him. We may for the moment abstain from dealing with the problem of whether democracy can survive under a system of government interference with business or of socialism. At any rate, it is beyond doubt that under editism, the plain citizens themselves turn toward aggression, provided the military prospects for success are favorable. Small nations cannot help being victimized by other nations' economic nationalism. But big nations place confidence in the valor of their armed forces. Present-day bellicosity is not the outcome of the greed of princes and of junker oligarchies. 
It is a pressure group policy whose distinctive mark lies in the methods applied, but not in the incentives and motives. German, Italian, and Japanese workers strive for a higher standard of living when fighting against other nations' economic nationalism. They are badly mistaken. The means chosen are not appropriate to attain the ends sought. But their errors are consistent with the doctrines of class war and social revolution so widely accepted today. The imperialism of the Axis is not a policy that grew out of the aims of an upper class. If we were to apply the spurious concepts of popular Marxism, we should have to style it labor imperialism. Paraphrasing General Clausewitz's famous dictum, one could say, it is only the continuation of domestic policy by other means. It is domestic class war shifted to the sphere of international relations. For more than 60 years, all European nations have been eager to assign more power to their governments, to expand the sphere of government compulsion and coercion, to subdue to the state all human activities and efforts. And yet, pacifists have repeated again and again that it is no concern of the individual citizen whether his country is large or small, powerful or weak. They have praised the blessings of peace while millions of people all over the world were putting all their hopes upon aggression and conquest. They have not seen that the only means to lasting peace is to remove the root causes of war. It is true that these pacifists have made some timid attempts to oppose economic nationalism. But they have never attacked its ultimate cause, Ataism, the trend toward government control of business, and thus their endeavors were doomed to fail. Of course, the pacifists are aiming at a supranational world authority which could peacefully settle all conflicts between various nations and enforce its rulings by a supranational police force. But what is needed for a satisfactory solution of the burning problem of international relations is neither a new office with more committees, secretaries, commissioners, reports, and regulations, nor a new body of armed executioners, but the radical overthrow of mentalities and domestic policies which must result in conflict. The lamentable failure of the Geneva experiment was precisely due to the fact that people, biased by the bureaucratic superstitions of editism, did not realize that offices and clerks cannot solve any problem. Whether or not there exists a supranational authority with an international parliament is of minor importance. The real need is to abandon policies detrimental to the interests of other nations. No international authority can preserve peace if economic wars continue. In our age of international division of labor, free trade is the prerequisite for any amicable arrangement between nations. And free trade is impossible in a world of ataism. The dictators offer us another solution. They are planning a new order, a system of world hegemony of one nation or of a group of nations, supported and safeguarded by the weapons of victorious armies. The privileged few will dominate the immense majority of inferior races. This new order is a very old concept. All conquerors have aimed at it. Genghis Khan and Napoleon were precursors of the Fuhrer. History has witnessed the failure of many endeavors to impose peace by war, cooperation by coercion, unanimity by slaughtering dissidents. Hitler will not succeed better than they. A lasting order cannot be established by bayonets. A minority cannot rule if it is not supported by the consent of those ruled. The rebellion of the oppressed will overthrow it sooner or later, even if it were to succeed for some time. But the Nazis have not even the chance to succeed for a short time. Their assault is doomed. Number 2. The present crisis of human civilization has its focal point in Germany. 
For more than half a century, the Reich has been the disturber of the peace. The main concern of European diplomacy in the 30 years preceding the First World War was to keep Germany in check by various schemes and tricks. But for German bellicosity, neither the Tsar's craving for power nor the antagonisms and rivalries of the various nationalities of southeastern Europe would have seriously disturbed the world's peace. When the devices of appeasement broke down in 1914, the forces of hell burst forth. The fruits of the victory of the Allies were lost by the shortcomings of the peace treaties, by the faults of the post-war policies, and by the ascendancy of economic nationalism. In the turmoil of these years between the two wars, when every nation was eager to inflict as much harm on other nations as possible, Germany was free to prepare a more tremendous assault. But for the Nazis, neither Italy nor Japan would be a match for the United Nations. This new war is a German war, as was the First World War. It is impossible to conceive the fundamental issues of this most terrible of all wars ever fought without an understanding of the main facts of German history. A hundred years ago, the Germans were quite different from what they are today. At that time, it was not their ambition to surpass the Huns and to outdo Attila. Their guiding stars were Schiller and Goethe, Herder and Kant, Mozart and Beethoven. Their leitmotiv was liberty, not conquest and oppression. The stages of the process which transformed the nation once styled by foreign observers, that of the poets and thinkers, into that of ruthless gangs of the Nazi stormtroops, ought to be known by everybody who wants to mold his own judgment on current world political affairs and problems. To understand the springs and tendencies of Nazi aggressiveness is of the highest importance both for the political and military conduct of the war and for the shaping of a durable post-war order. Many mistakes could have been avoided and many sacrifices spared by a better and clearer insight into the essence and the forces of German nationalism. It is the task of the present book to trace the outlines of the changes and events which brought about the contemporary state of Germany and European affairs. It seeks to correct many popular errors which sprang from legends badly distorting historical facts and from doctrines misrepresenting economic developments and policies. It deals both with history and with fundamental issues of sociology and economics. It tries not to neglect any point of view, the elucidation of which is necessary for a full description of the world's Nazi problem. Number 3. In the history of the last 200 years, we can discern two distinctive ideological trends. There was first the trend toward freedom, the rights of man, and self-determination. This individualism resulted in the fall of autocratic government, the establishment of democracy, the evolution of capitalism, technical improvements, and an unprecedented rise in standards of living. It substituted enlightenment for old superstitions, scientific methods of research for inveterate prejudices. It was an epoch of great artistry and literary achievements, the age of immortal musicians, painters, writers, and philosophers. And it brushed away slavery, serfdom, torture, inquisition, and other remnants of the Dark Ages. In the second part of this period, individualism gave way to another trend the trend towards state omnipotence. Men now seem eager to vest all powers in governments, i.e. in the apparatus of social compulsion and coercion. They aim at totalitarianism, that is, conditions in which all human affairs are managed by governments. They hail every step toward more government interference as progress toward a more perfect world. They are confident that the governments will transform the earth into a paradise. Characteristically, nowadays in the countries furthest advanced toward totalitarianism, even the use of the individual citizen's leisure time is considered as a task of the government. 
In Italy, Doppelavoro, and in Germany, Freisetgestaltung, are regular legitimate fields of government interference. To such an extent are men entangled in the tenets of state idolatry that they do not see the paradox of a government-regulated leisure. It is not the task of this book to deal with all the problems of statolatry or etaism. Its scope is limited to the treatment of the consequences of etaism for international relations. In our age of international division of labor, totalitarianism within several scores of sovereign national governments is self-contradictory. Economic considerations are pushing every totalitarian government toward world domination. The Soviet government is, by the deed of its foundation, not a national government, but a universal government, only by unfortunate conditions, temporarily prevented from exercising its power in all countries. Its official name does not contain any reference to Russia. It was the aim of Lenin to make it the nucleus of a world government. There are in every country parties loyal only to the Soviets, in whose eyes the domestic governments are usurpers. It is not the merit of the Bolsheviks that these ambitious plans have not succeeded up to now, and that the expected world revolution has not appeared. The Nazis have not changed the official designation of their country, the Deutsches Reich. But their literary champions consider the Reich the only legitimate government, and their political chiefs openly crave world hegemony. The intellectual leaders of Japan have been imbued at European universities with the spirit of etaism, and back home have revived the old tenet that their divine emperor, the son of heaven, has a fair title to rule all peoples. Even the Duce, in spite of the military impotence of his country, proclaimed his intention to reconstruct the ancient Roman Empire. Spanish phalangists babble about a restoration of the domain of Philip II. In such an atmosphere, there is no room left for the peaceful cooperation of nations. The ordeal through which mankind is going in our day is not the outcome of the operation of uncontrollable natural forces. It is rather the inevitable result of the working of doctrines and policies popular with millions of our contemporaries. However, it would be a fateful mistake to assume that a return to the policies of liberalism abandoned by the civilized nations some decades ago could cure these evils and open the way toward peaceful cooperation of nations and toward prosperity. If Europeans and the peoples of European descent in other parts of the earth had not yielded to etaism, if they had not embarked upon vast schemes of government interference with business, our recent political, social, and economic disasters could have been avoided. Men would live today under more satisfactory conditions and would not apply all their skill and all their intellectual power to mutual extermination. But these years of antagonism and conflict have left a deep impression on human mentality, which cannot easily be eradicated. They have marked the souls of men. They have disintegrated the spirit of human cooperation and have engendered hatreds which can vanish only in centuries. Under present conditions, the adoption of a policy of outright laissez-faire and laissez-passer on the part of the civilized nations of the West would be equivalent to an unconditional surrender to the totalitarian nations. Take, for instance, the case of migration barriers. Unrestrictedly opening the doors of the Americas, of Australia, and of Western Europe to immigrants would today be equivalent to opening the doors to the vanguards of the armies of Germany, Italy, and Japan. There is no other system which could safeguard the smooth coordination of the peaceful efforts of individuals and nations, but the system today commonly scorned as Manchesterism. We may hope, although such hopes are rather feeble, that the peoples of the Western democratic world will be prepared to acknowledge this fact 
and to abandon their present-day totalitarian tendencies. But there can be no doubt that to the immense majority of men, militarist ideas appeal much more than those of liberalism. The most that can be expected for the immediate future is the separation of the world into two sections, a liberal, democratic, and a capitalist West, with about one-quarter of the total world population, and a militarist and totalitarian East, embracing the much greater part of the Earth's surface and its population. Such a state of affairs will force upon the West policies of defense, which will seriously hamper its efforts to make life more civilized and economic conditions more prosperous. Even this melancholy image may prove too optimistic. There are no signs that the peoples of the West are prepared to abandon their policies of etaism, but then they will be prevented from giving up their mutual economic warfare, their economic nationalism, and from establishing peaceful relations among their own countries. Then we shall stand where the world stood in the period between the two world wars. The result will be a third war, more dreadful and more disastrous than its precursors. It is the task of the last part of this book to discuss the conditions which could preserve at least, for the Western democracies, some amount of political and economic security. It is its aim to find out whether there is any imaginable scheme which could make for durable peace in this age of the omnipotence of the state. Number 4. The main obstacle both to every attempt to study, in an unbiased way, the social, political, and economic problems of our day, and to all endeavors to substitute more satisfactory policies for those which have resulted in the present crisis of civilization, is to be found in the stubborn, intransigent dogmatism of our age. A new type of superstition has got hold of people's minds, the worship of the state. People demand the exercise of the methods of coercion and compulsion, of violence and threat. Woe to anybody who does not bend his knee to the fashionable idols. The case is obvious with present-day Russia and Germany. One cannot dispose of this fact by calling the Russians and the Germans barbarians and saying that such things cannot and will not happen with the more civilized nations of the West. There are only a few friends of tolerance left in the West. The parties of the left and of the right are everywhere highly suspicious of freedom of thought. It is very characteristic that in these years of the desperate struggle against the Nazi aggression, a distinguished British pro-Soviet author has the boldness to champion the cause of Inquisition. Inquisition, says T.G. Crother, is beneficial to science when it protects a rising class. For the danger or value of an Inquisition depends on whether it is used on behalf of a reactionary or a progressiving governing class. But who is progressive and who is reactionary? There is a remarkable difference with regard to this issue between Harold Lasky and Alfred Rosenberg. It is true that outside of Russia and Germany, dissenters do not yet risk the firing squad or slow death in a concentration camp. But few are any longer ready to pay serious attention to dissenting views. If a man tries to question the doctrines of Etaism or nationalism, hardly anyone ventures to weigh his arguments. The heretic is ridiculed, called names, ignored. It has come to be regarded as insolent or outrageous to criticize the views of powerful pressure groups or political parties, or to doubt the beneficial effects of state omnipotence. Public opinion has espoused a set of dogmas which there is less and less freedom to attack. In the name of progress and freedom, both progress and freedom are being outlawed. Every doctrine that has recourse to the police power or to other methods of violence or threat, or its protection, reveals its inner weakness. If we had no other means to judge the Nazi doctrines, the single fact that they seek shelter behind the Gestapo would be sufficient evidence against them.
Doctrines which can stand the trial of logic and reason can do without persecuting skeptics. This war was not caused by Nazism alone. The failure of all other nations to stop the rise of Nazism in time and to erect a barrier against a new German aggression was not less instrumental in bringing about the disaster than were the events of Germany's domestic evolution. There was no secrecy about the ambitions of the Nazis. The Nazis themselves advertised them in innumerable books and pamphlets and in every issue of their numerous newspapers and periodicals. Nobody can reproach the Nazis with having concocted their plots clandestinely. He who had ears to hear and eyes to see could not help but know all about their aspirations. The responsibility for the present state of world affairs lies with those doctrines and parties that have dominated the course of politics in the last decades. Indicting Nazism is a queer way to exculpate the culprits. Yes, the Nazis and their allies are bad people, but it should be the primary aim of politics to protect nations against the dangers originating from the hostile attitudes of bad people. If there were no bad people, there would not be any need for a government. If those in a position to direct the activities of governments do not succeed in preventing disaster, they have given proof that they are not equal to their task. There was in the last 25 years but one political problem, to prevent the catastrophe of this war. But the politicians were either struck with blindness or incapable of doing anything to avoid the impending disaster. The parties of the left are in the happy position of people who have received a revelation telling them what is good and what is bad. They know that private property is the source of all ills and that public control of the means of production will transform the earth into a paradise. They wash their hands of any responsibility. This imperialist war is simply an outcome of capitalism, as all wars have been. But if we pass in review the political activities of the socialist and communist parties in the Western democracies, we can easily discover that they did all that they could to encourage the Nazi plans for aggression. They have propagated the doctrine that disarmament and neutrality are the best means to stop the Nazis and the other Axis powers. They did not intend to aid the Nazis, but if they had had this intention, they could not have acted differently. The ideals of the left are fully realized in Soviet Russia. Here is Marxism supreme, the proletariat's alone rule. But Soviet Russia failed even more lamentably than any other nation in preventing this war. The Russians knew very well that the Nazis were eager to conquer the Ukraine. Nevertheless, they behaved as Hitler wanted them to behave. Their policies contributed a good deal to the ascendancy of Nazism in Germany, to the rearmament of Germany, and finally to the outbreak of the war. It is no excuse for them that they were suspicious of the capitalist nations. There is no excuse for a policy harmful to one's own cause. No one can deny that the agreement of August 1939 brought disaster for Russia. Stalin would have served his country far better by collaborating with Great Britain than by his compromise with the Nazis. The same holds true for the conduct of all other European countries. One could hardly imagine a more fatuous policy than that of Poland, when in 1938 it annexed a part of Czechoslovakia or that of Belgium, when in 1936 it severed the ties of the alliance which linked it with France. The fate of the Poles, the Czechs, the Norwegians, the Dutch, the Belgians, the Greeks, and the Yugoslavs deserves profound pity. But one cannot help asserting that they helped to bring their misfortune upon themselves. This Second World War would never have broken out if the Nazis had expected to encounter on the first day of hostilities a united and adequately armed front of Great Britain, France, Russia, the United States, and all the small democracies of Europe led by a unified command.
An investigation of the root causes of the ascendancy of Nazism must show not only how domestic German conditions begot Nazism, but also why all other nations failed to protect themselves against the havoc. Seen from the viewpoint of the British, the Poles, or the Austrians, the chief question is not, what is wrong with the Nazis, but what was wrong with our policies with regard to the Nazi menace? Faced with the problems of tuberculosis, doctors did not ask, what is wrong with the germs, but what is wrong with our methods of preventing the spread of the disease? Life consists in adjusting oneself to actual conditions and in taking account of things as they really are, not as one would wish them to be. It would be more pleasant if there were neither germs nor dangerous barbarians, but he who wants to succeed has to fix his glance upon reality, not to indulge in wishful dreams. There is no hope left for a return to more satisfactory conditions if people do not understand that they have failed completely in the main task of contemporary politics. All present-day political, social, and economic doctrines, and all parties and pressure groups applying them, are condemned by an unappealable sentence of history. Nothing can be expected from the future if men do not realize that they were on the wrong path. It is not a mark of hostility to any nation to establish the fact that its policies were entirely wrong and have resulted in a disastrous failure. It is not a sign of hostility to the members of any class, pressure group, or organization to try to point out wherein they were mistaken and how they have contributed to the present unsatisfactory state of affairs. The main task of contemporary social science is to defy the taboo by which the established doctrines seek to protect their fallacies and errors against criticism. He who in the face of tremendous catastrophe, whose consequences cannot yet be completely seen, still believes that there are some doctrines, institutions, or policies beyond criticism, has not grasped the meaning of the portents. Let the example of Germany stand as a warning to us. German Kultur was doomed on the day in 1870 when one of the most eminent German scientists, Emil Dubois Raymond, could publicly boast, without meeting contradiction, that the University of Berlin was the intellectual bodyguard of the House of Hohenzollern. Where the universities become bodyguards and the scholars are eager to range themselves in a scientific front, the gates are open for the entry of barbarism. It is vain to fight totalitarianism by adopting totalitarian methods. Freedom can only be won by men unconditionally committed to the principles of freedom. The first requisite for a better social order is the return to unrestricted freedom of thought and speech. Number 5. Whoever wishes to understand the present state of political affairs must study history. He must know the forces which gave rise to our problems and conflicts. Historical knowledge is indispensable for those who want to build a better world. Unfortunately, the nationalists approach history in another temper. For them, the past is not a source of information and instruction, but an arsenal of weapons for the conduct of war. They search for facts which can be used as pretexts and excuses for their drives for aggression and oppression. If the documents available do not provide such facts, they do not shrink from distorting truth and from falsifying documents. In the early 19th century, a Czech forged a manuscript in order to prove that his people's medieval ancestors had already reached a high stage of civilization and had produced fine literary works. For many decades, Czech scholars fanatically asserted the authenticity of this poem, and for a long time the official curriculum of the Czech state gymnasiums of Old Austria made its reading and interpretation the main topic in the teaching of Czech literature. About 50 years later, a German forged the Urlinda Chronicle, 
in order to prove that the Nordics created a civilization older and better than that of any other people. There are still Nazi professors who are not ready to admit that this chronicle is the clumsy forgery of an incompetent and stupid backwoodsman. But let us assume for the sake of argument that these two documents are authentic. What could they prove for the nationalists' aspirations? Do they support the claim of the Czechs to deny autonomy to several million Germans and Slovaks? Or the claim of Germans to deny autonomy to all Czechs? There is, for instance, the spurious dispute as to whether Nicholas Copernicus was a Pole or a German. The documents available do not solve the problem. It is at any rate certain that Copernicus was educated in schools and university, whose only language was Latin, that he knew no other mathematical and astronomical books than those written in Latin or Greek, and that he himself wrote his treatises in Latin only. But let us assume for the sake of argument that he really was the son of parents whose language was German. Could this provide a justification for the methods applied by the Germans in dealing with the Poles? Does it exculpate the German school teachers who, in the first decade of our century, flogged small children whose parents objected to the substitution of the German catechism for the Polish catechism in the schools of Prussia's Polish provinces? Does it today entitle the Nazis to slaughter Polish women and children? It is futile to advance historical or geographical reasons in support of political ambitions which cannot stand the criticism of democratic principles. Democratic government can safeguard peace and international cooperation because it does not aim at the oppression of other peoples. If some peoples pretend that history or geography gives them the right to subjugate other races, nations, or peoples, there can be no peace. It is unbelievable how deep-rooted these vicious ideas of hegemony, domination, and oppression are, even among the most distinguished contemporaries. Señor Salvador de Madariaga is one of the most internationally minded of men. He is a scholar, a statesman, and a writer, and is perfectly familiar with the English and French languages and literatures. He is a Democrat, a progressive, and an enthusiastic supporter of the League of Nations, and of all endeavors to make peace durable. Yet his opinion on the political problems of his own country and nation are animated by the spirit of intransigent nationalism. He condemns the demands of the Catalans and the Basques for independence, and advocates Castilian hegemony for racial, historical, geographical, linguistic, religious, and economic considerations. It would be justifiable if Senor Madariaga were to refute the claims of these linguistic groups on the ground that it is impossible to draw undisputed borderlines and that their independence would therefore not eliminate but perpetuate the causes of conflict. Or if he were in favor of a transformation of the Spanish state of Castilian hegemony, into a state in which every linguistic group enjoyed the freedom to use its own idiom. But this is not at all the plan of Señor Madariaga. He does not advocate the substitution of a supranational government of the three linguistic groups, Castilians, Catalans, and Basques, for the Castile-dominated state of Spain. His ideal for Spain is Castilian supremacy. He does not want Spain to let go the work of centuries in one generation. However, this work was not an achievement of the peoples concerned. It was the result of dynastic intermarriage. Is it right to object to the claims of the Catalans that in the 12th century the court of Barcelona married the king of Aragon's daughter, and that in the 15th century the king of Aragon married the queen of Castile? Señor Madariaga goes even further and denies to the Portuguese the right of autonomy and statehood. Or, the Portuguese is a Spaniard with his back to Castile and his eyes on the Atlantic Sea. Why then did not Spain absorb Portugal too? 
To this, Senor Madariaga gives a strange answer. Castile could not marry both East and West at one time. Perhaps Isabel, being a woman after all, preferred Ferdinand's looks to Alfonso's, for of such things also history is made. Senor Madariaga is right in quoting an eminent Spanish author, Ángel Ganivet, to the effect that a union of Spain and Portugal must be the outcome of their own free will. But the trouble is that the Portuguese do not long for Castilian or Spanish overlordship. Still more amazing are Senor Madariaga's views on Spain's colonial and foreign affairs. Speaking of the American colonies, he observes that the Spanish monarchy organized them faithful to its guiding principle, the fraternity of all men. However, Bolivar, San Martin, and Morelos did not like this peculiar brand of fraternity. Then, Senor Madariaga tries to justify Spanish aspirations in Morocco by alluding to Spain's position which history, geography, and inherent destiny seemed obviously to suggest. For an unbiased reader, there is hardly any difference between such an inherent destiny and the mystical forces to which Mr. Hitler, Mussolini, and Stalin referred in annexing small countries. If inherent destiny justifies Spanish ambitions in Morocco, does it not in the same way support Russian appetites for the Baltic countries and Caucasian Georgia, German claims with regard to Bohemia and the Netherlands, Italy's title to Mediterranean supremacy? We cannot eradicate the past from our memories, but it is not the task of history to kindle new conflicts by reviving hatreds long since dead and by searching the archives for pretexts for new conflicts. We do not have to revenge crimes committed centuries ago by kings and conquerors. We have to build a new and better world order. It is without any relevance to the problems of our time whether the age-old antagonisms between the Russians and the Poles were initiated by Russian or by Polish aggression, or whether the atrocities committed in the Palatinate by the mercenaries of Louis IV were more nefarious than those committed by the Nazis today. We have to prevent once and for all the repetition of such outrages. This aim alone can elevate the present war to the dignity of mankind's most noble undertaking. The pitiless annihilation of Nazism is the first step toward freedom and peace. Neither destiny, nor history, nor geography, nor anthropology must hinder us from choosing those methods of political organization which can make for durable peace, international cooperation, and economic prosperity. Part 1. The Collapse of German Liberalism Number 1. German Liberalism the Ancien Regime and Liberalism It is a fundamental mistake to believe that Nazism is a revival or a continuation of the policies and mentalities of the Ancien Regime or a display of the Prussian spirit. Nothing in Nazism takes up the thread of the ideas and institutions of older German history. Neither Nazism nor Pan-Germanism, from which Nazism stems and whose consequent evolution it represents, is derived from the Prussianism of Frederick William I or Frederick II called the Great. Pan-Germanism and Nazism never intended to restore the policy of the electors of Brandenburg and of the first four kings of Prussia. They have sometimes depicted as the goal of their endeavors the return of the lost paradise of old Prussia. But this was mere propaganda talk for the consumption of a public which worshipped the heroes of days gone by. Nazism's program does not aim at the restoration of something past but at the establishment of something new and unheard of. The old Prussian state of the House of Hohenzollern was completely destroyed by the French on the battlefields of Jena and Auerstadt, 1806. The Prussian army surrendered at Prenzlau and Ratkow. The garrisons of the more important fortresses and citadels capitulated without firing a shot. The king took refuge with the Tsar, whose mediation alone brought about the preservation of his realm. 
But the old Prussian state was internally broken down long before this military defeat. It had long been decomposed and rotten when Napoleon gave it the finishing stroke. For the ideology on which it was based had lost all its power. It had been disintegrated by the assault of the new ideas of liberalism. Like all the other princes and dukes who have established their sovereign rule on the debris of the Holy Roman Empire of the Teutonic Nation, the Hohenzollerns, too, regarded their territory as a family estate, whose boundaries they tried to expand through violence, ruse, and family compacts. The people living within their possessions were subjects who had to obey orders. They were appurtenances of the soil, the property of the ruler who had the right to deal with them ad libitum. Their happiness and welfare were of no concern. Of course, the king took an interest in the material well-being of his subjects, but this interest was not founded on the belief that it is the purpose of civil government to make the people prosperous. Such ideas were deemed absurd in the 18th century Germany. The king was eager to increase the wealth of the peasantry and the townsfolk because their income was the source from which his revenue was derived. He was not interested in the subject but in the taxpayer. He wanted to derive from his administration of the country the means to increase his power and splendor. The German princes envied the riches of Western Europe, which provided the kings of France and of Great Britain with funds for the maintenance of mighty armies and navies. They encouraged commerce, trade, mining, and agriculture in order to raise the public revenue. The subjects, however, were simply pawns in the game of the rulers. But the attitude of these subjects changed considerably at the end of the 18th century. From Western Europe, new ideas began to penetrate into Germany. The people, accustomed to obey blindly the God-given authority of the princes, heard for the first time the words liberty, self-determination, rights of man, parliament, constitution. The Germans learned to grasp the meaning of dangerous watchwords. No German has contributed anything to the elaboration of the great system of liberal thought, which has transformed the structure of society and replaced the rule of kings and royal mistresses by the government of the people. The philosophers, economists, and sociologists who develop it thought and wrote English or French. In the 18th century, the Germans did not even succeed in achieving readable translations of these English, Scotch, and French authors. What German idealistic philosophy produced in this field is poor indeed when compared with contemporary English and French thought. But German intellectuals welcomed Western ideas of freedom and the rights of men with enthusiasm. German classical literature is imbued with them, and the great German composer set to music verses singing the praises of liberty. The poems, plays, and other writings of Frederick Schiller are from beginning to end a hymn to liberty. Every word written by Schiller was a blow to the old political system of Germany. His works were fervently greeted by nearly all Germans who read books or frequented the theater. These intellectuals, of course, were a minority only. To the masses, books and theaters were unknown. They were the poor serfs in the eastern provinces. They were the inhabitants of the Catholic countries, who only slowly succeeded in freeing themselves from the tight grasp of the Counter-Reformation. Even in the more advanced western parts and in the cities, there were still many illiterates and semi-illiterates. These masses were not concerned with any political issue. They obeyed blindly because they lived in fear of punishment in hell, with which the church threatened them, and in a still greater fear of the police. They were outside the pale of German civilization and German cultural life. They knew only their regional dialects and could hardly converse with a man who spoke only the German literary language or another dialect. But the number of these backward people was steadily decreasing. Economic prosperity and education spread from year to year. More and more people reached a standard of living which allowed them to care for other things besides food and shelter, and to employ their leisure in something more than drinking. Whoever rose from misery and joined the community of civilized men became a liberal. 
except for the small group of princes and their aristocratic retainers. Practically everyone interested in political issues was liberal. There were in Germany in those days only liberal men and indifferent men, but the ranks of the indifferent continually shrank while the ranks of the liberal swelled. All intellectuals sympathized with the French Revolution. They scorned the terrorism of the Jacobins, but unswervingly approved the Great Reform. They saw in Napoleon the man who would safeguard and complete these reforms and, like Beethoven, took a dislike to him as soon as he betrayed freedom and made himself emperor. Never before had any spiritual movement taken hold of the whole German people, and never before had they been united in their feelings and ideas. In fact, the people who spoke German and were the subjects of the empire's princes, prelates, counts, and urban patricians became a nation, the German nation, by their reception of the new ideas coming from the West. Only then there came into being what had never existed before, a German public opinion, a German public, a German literature, a German fatherland. The Germans now began to understand the meaning of ancient authors which they had read in school. They now conceived the history of their nation as something more than the struggles of princes for land and revenues. The subjects of many hundreds of petty lords became Germans through the acceptance of Western ideas. This new spirit shook the foundations on which the princes had built their thrones, the traditional loyalty and subservience of the subjects who were prepared to acquiesce in the despotic rule of a group of privileged families. The Germans dreamed now of a German state with parliamentary government and the rights of men. They did not care for the existing German states. Those Germans who styled themselves patriots, the newfangled term imported from France, despised these seats of despotic misrule and abuse. They hated the tyrants and they hated Prussia most because it appeared to be the most powerful and therefore most dangerous menace to German freedom. The Prussian myth, which the Prussian historians of the 19th century fashioned with a bold disregard of facts, would have us believe that Frederick II was viewed by his contemporaries as they themselves represent him, as the champion of Germany's greatness, protagonist in Germany's rise to unity and power, the nation's hero. Nothing could be further from the truth. The military campaigns of the warrior king were to his contemporaries struggle to increase the possessions of the House of Brandenburg, which concerned the dynasty only. They admired his strategical talents, but they detested the brutalities of the Prussian system. Whoever praised Frederick within the borders of his realm did so from necessity to evade the indignation of a prince who wreaked stern vengeance upon every foe. When people outside of Prussia praised him, they were disguising criticism of their own rulers. The subjects of petty princes found this irony the least dangerous way to disparage their pocket-sized Neros and Borgias. They glorified his military achievements but called themselves happy because they were not at the mercy of his whims and cruelties. They approved of Frederick only insofar as he fought their domestic tyrants. At the end of the 18th century, German public opinion was as unanimously opposed to the ancient regime as in France on the eve of the revolution. The German people witnessed with indifference the French annexation of the left bank of the Rhine, the defeats of Austria and of Prussia, the breaking up of the Holy Roman Empire, and the establishment of the Rhine Confederacy. They held the reforms forced upon the governments of all their states by the ascendancy of the French ideas. They admired Napoleon as a great general and ruler, just as they had previously admired Frederick of Prussia. The Germans began to hate the French only when, like the French subjects of the emperor, they finally became tired of the endless burdens of wars. When the great army had been wrecked in Russia, the people took an interest in the campaigns which finished Napoleon, 
but only because they hoped that his downfall would result in the establishment of parliamentary government. Later events dispelled this illusion, and there slowly grew the revolutionary spirit which led to the upheaval of 1848. It has been asserted that the roots of present-day nationalism and Nazism are to be found in the writings of the Romantics, in the plays of Heinrich von Kleist, and in the political songs which accompanied the final struggle against Napoleon. This, too, is an error. The sophisticated works of the Romantics, the perverted feelings of Kleist's plays, and the patriotic poetry of the Wars of Liberation did not appreciably move the public, and the philosophical and sociological essays of those authors who recommended a return to medieval institutions were considered abstruse. People were not interested in the Middle Ages, but in the parliamentary activities of the West. They read the books of Goethe and Schiller, not of the Romantics, went to the plays of Schiller, not of Kleist. Schiller became the preferred poet of the nation. In his enthusiastic devotion to liberty, the Germans found their political ideal. The celebration of Schiller's 100th anniversary in 1859 was the most impressive political demonstration that ever took place in Germany. The German nation was united in its adherence to the ideas of Schiller, to the liberal ideas. All endeavors to make the German people desert the cause of freedom failed. The teachings of its adversaries had no effect. In vain, Metternich's police fought the rising tide of liberalism. Only in the later decades of the 19th century was the hold of liberal ideas shaken. This was effected by the doctrines of Etaism. Etaism, we will have to deal with it later, is a system of socio-political ideas which has no counterpart in older history and is not linked up with older ways of thinking. Although, with regard to the technical character of the policies which it recommends, it may, with some justification, be called neo-mercantilism. Number 2. The Weakness of German Liberalism At about the middle of the 19th century, those Germans interested in political issues were united in their adherence to liberalism. Yet the German nation did not succeed in shaking off the yoke of absolutism and in establishing democracy and parliamentary government. What was the reason for this? Let us first compare German conditions with those of Italy, which was in a similar situation. Italy, too, was liberal-minded, but the Italian liberals were impotent. The Austrian army was strong enough to defeat every revolutionary upheaval. A foreign army kept Italian liberalism in check. Other foreign armies freed Italy from this control. At Solferino, at Koningratz, and at the banks of the Marne, the French, the Prussians, and the English fought the battles which rendered Italy independent of the Habsburgs. Just as Italian liberalism was no match for the Austrian army, so German liberalism was unable to cope with the armies of Austria and Prussia. The Austrian army consisted mainly of non-German soldiers. The Prussian army, of course, had mostly German-speaking men in its ranks. The Poles, the other Slavs, and the Lithuanians were a minority only. But a great number of these men speaking one of the German dialects were recruited from those strata of society which were not yet awakened to political interests. They came from the eastern provinces, from the eastern banks of the Elbe River. They were mostly illiterate and unfamiliar with the mentality of the intellectuals and of the townsfolk. They had never heard anything about the new ideas. They had grown up in the habit of obeying the Junker, who exercised executive and judicial power in their village, to whom they owed imposts and corvier, unpaid statute labor, and whom the law considered as their legitimate overlord. These virtual serfs were not capable of disobeying an order to fire upon the people. The supreme warlord of the Prussian army could trust them. These men and the Poles formed the detachments which defeated the Prussian Revolution in 1848. 
Such were the conditions which prevented the German liberals from suiting their actions to their words. They were forced to wait until the progress of prosperity and education could bring these backward people into the ranks of liberalism. Then they were convinced the victory of liberalism was bound to come. Time worked for it, but alas, events belied these expectations. It was the fate of Germany that before this triumph of liberalism could be achieved, liberalism and liberal ideas were overthrown, not only in Germany but everywhere, by other ideas which again penetrated into Germany from the West. German liberalism had not yet fulfilled its task when it was defeated by etatism, nationalism, and socialism. Number 3. The Prussian Army The Prussian army which fought in the battles of Leipzig and Waterloo was very different from the army which Frederick William I had organized and which Frederick II had commanded in three great wars. That old army of Prussia had been smashed and destroyed in the campaign of 1806 and never revived. The Prussian army of the 18th century was composed of men pressed into service, brutally drilled by flogging, and held together by a barbaric discipline. They were mainly foreigners. The kings preferred foreigners to their own subjects. They believed that their subjects could be more useful to the country when working and paying taxes than when serving in the armed forces. In 1742, Frederick II set as his goal that the infantry should consist of two-thirds foreigners and one-third natives. Deserters from foreign armies, prisoners of war, criminals, vagabonds, tramps, and people whom the crimps had entrapped by fraud and violence were the bulk of the regiments. These soldiers were prepared to profit by every opportunity for escape. Prevention of desertion was therefore the main concern of the conduct of military affairs. Frederick II begins his main treatise of strategy, his General Principles of Warfare, with the exposition of 14 rules on how to hinder desertion. Tactical and even strategical considerations had to be subordinated to the prevention of desertion. The troops could only be employed when tightly assembled together. Patrols could not be sent out. Strategical pursuit of a defeated enemy force was impossible. Marching or attacking at night and camping near forests were strictly avoided. The soldiers were ordered to watch each other constantly both in war and peace. Civilians were obliged by the threat of the heaviest penalties to bar the way to deserters, to catch them and deliver them to the army. The commissioned officers of this army were as a rule noblemen. Among them too were many foreigners, but the greater number belonged to the Prussian junker class. Frederick II repeats again and again in his writings that commoners are not fit for commissions because their minds are directed toward profit, not honor. Although a military career was very profitable, as the commander of a company drew a comparatively high income, a great part of the landed aristocracy objected to the military profession for their sons. The kings used to send out policemen to kidnap the sons of noble landowners and put them into their military schools. The education provided by these schools was hardly more than that of an elementary school. Men with higher education were very rare in the ranks of Prussian commissioned officers. Such an army could fight and, under an able commander, conquer, only as long as it encountered armies of a similar structure. It scattered like chaff when it had to fight the forces of Napoleon. The armies of the French Revolution and of the First Empire were recruited from the people. They were armies of freemen, not of crimped scum. Their commanders did not fear desertion. They could therefore abandon the traditional tactics of moving forward in deployed lines and of firing volleys without taking aim. They could adopt a new method of combat, that is, fighting in columns and skirmishing. The new structure of the army brought first a new tactic and then a new strategy. Against these, the old Prussian army proved impotent. 
The French pattern served as a model for the organization of the Prussian army in the years 1808 to 1813. It was built upon the principle of compulsory service of all men physically fit. The new army stood the test in the wars of 1813 to 1815. Consequently, its organization was not changed for about half a century. How this army would have fought in another war against a foreign aggressor will never be known. It was spared this trial. But one thing is beyond doubt, and was attested by events in the Revolution of 1848. Only a part of it could be relied on in a fight against the people, the domestic foe of the government, and an unpopular war of aggression could not be waged with these soldiers. In suppressing the Revolution of 1848, only the regiments of the Royal Guard, whose men were selected for their allegiance to the king, the cavalry, and the regiments recruited from the eastern provinces, could be considered absolutely reliable. The Army Corps recruited from the west, the militia, Landwehr, and the reservists of many eastern regiments were more or less infected by liberal ideas. The men of the guards and of the cavalry had to give three years of active service, as against two years for the other parts of the forces. Hence, the generals concluded that two years was too short a time to transform a civilian into a soldier unconditionally loyal to the king. What was needed in order to safeguard the political system of Prussia with its royal absolutism exercised by the Junkers was an army of men ready to fight, without asking questions, against everybody whom their commanders ordered them to attack. This army, His Majesty's army, not an army of the parliament or of the people, would have the task of defeating any revolutionary movement within Prussia or within the smaller states of the German Confederation, and of repelling possible invasions from the West, which could force the German princes to grant constitutions and other concessions to their subjects. In Europe of the 1850s, where the French Emperor and the British Prime Minister, Lord Palmerston, openly professed their sympathies with the popular movements menacing the vested interests of kings and aristocrats, the army of the House of Hohenzollern was the Rocher de Bronze amid the rising tide of liberalism. To make this army reliable and invincible meant not only preserving the Hohenzollerns and their aristocratic retainers, it meant much more. The salvation of civilization from the threat of revolution and anarchy. Such was the philosophy of Frederick Julius Stahl and of the right-wing Hegelians. Such were the ideas of the Prussian historians of the Kleindeutsch School of History. Such was the mentality of this military party at the court of King Frederick William IV. This king, of course, was a sickly neurotic, whom every day brought nearer to complete mental disability. But the generals, led by General von Roon and backed by Prince William, the king's brother and heir apparent to the throne, were clear-headed and steadily pursued their aim. The partial success of the revolution had resulted in the establishment of a Prussian parliament. But its prerogatives were so restricted that the Supreme Warlord was not prevented from adopting those measures which he deemed indispensable for rendering the army a more reliable instrument in the hands of its commanders. The experts were fully convinced that two years of active service was sufficient for the military training of the infantry, not for reasons of a technical military character, but for purely political considerations the King prolonged active service for the infantry regiments of the line from two years to two and a half in 1852, and to three in 1856. Through this measure, the chances of success against a repetition of the revolutionary movement were greatly improved. The military party was now confident that for the immediate future, they were strong enough, with the royal guards and with the men doing active service in the regiments of the line, to conquer poorly armed rebels. Relying on this, they decided to go further and thoroughly reform the organization of the armed forces.
The goal of this reform was to make the army both stronger and more loyal to the king. The number of infantry battalions would be almost doubled. The artillery increased 25%, and many new regiments of cavalry formed. The number of yearly recruits would be raised from under 40,000 to 63,000, and the ranks of commissioned officers increased correspondingly. On the other hand, the militia would be transformed into a reserve of the active army. The older men were discharged from service in the militia as not fully reliable. The higher ranks of the militia would be entrusted to commissioned officers of the professional corps. Conscious of the strength which the prolongation of active service had already given them, and confident that they would for the time being suppress a revolutionary attempt, the court carried out this reform without consulting Parliament. The king's lunacy had, in the meanwhile, become so manifest that Prince William had to be installed as Prince Regent. The royal power was now in the hands of a tractable adherent of the aristocratic clique and of the military hotspurs. In 1859, during the war between Austria and France, the Prussian army had been mobilized as a measure of precaution and to safeguard neutrality. The demobilization was effected in such a manner that the main objectives of the reform were attained. In the spring of 1860, all the newly planned regiments had already been established. Only then, the cabinet brought the reform bill to Parliament and asked it to vote the expenditure involved. The struggle against this army bill was the last political act of German liberalism. Number 4. The Constitutional Conflict in Prussia The progressives, as the liberals in the Prussian lower chamber, Chamber of Deputies, call their party, bitterly opposed the reform. The chamber voted repeatedly against the bill and against the budget. The king, Frederick William IV, had now died, and William I had succeeded him, dissolved parliament, but the electors returned a majority of progressives. The king and his ministers could not break the opposition of the legislative body but they clung to their plan and carried on without constitutional approval and parliamentary assent. They led the new army into two campaigns and defeated Denmark in 1864 and Austria in 1866. Only then, after the annexation of the Kingdom of Hanover, the possessions of the Elector of Hessen, the Duchies of Nassau, Schleswig and Holstein, and the Free City of Frankfurt, after the establishment of Prussian hegemony over all the states of northern Germany, and the conclusion of military conventions with the states of southern Germany, by which these two surrendered to the Hohenzollern, did the Prussian parliament give in. The progressive party split, and some of its former members supported the government. Thus the king got a majority. The chamber voted indemnification for the unconstitutional conduct of affairs by the government, and belatedly sanctioned all measures and expenditures which they had opposed for six years. The great constitutional conflict resulted in full success for the king and in a complete defeat for liberalism. When a delegation of the Chamber of Deputies brought the king the Parliament's accommodating answer to his royal speech at the opening of the new session, he haughtily declared that it was his duty to act as he had in the last years and that he would act the same way in the future too, should similar conditions occur again. But in the course of the conflict, he had more than once despaired. In 1862, he had lost all hope of defeating the resistance of the people and was ready to abdicate. General von Roon urged him to make a last attempt by appointing Bismarck prime minister. Bismarck rushed from Paris, where he represented Prussia at the court of Napoleon III. He found the king worn out, depressed, and discouraged. When Bismarck tried to explain his own view of the political situation, William interrupted him, saying, I see exactly how all this will turn out. Right here, in this opera square on which these windows look, 
They will be head first you, and a little later me too. It was hard work for Bismarck to infuse courage into the trembling Hohenzollern. But finally, Bismarck reports, my words appeal to his military honor, and he saw himself in the position of an officer who has the duty of defending his post unto death. Still more frightened than the king were the queen, the royal princes, and many generals. In England, Queen Victoria spent sleepless nights thinking of the position of her eldest daughter married to the Prussian crown prince. The royal palace of Berlin was haunted by the ghosts of Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. All these fears, however, were unfounded. The progressives did not venture a new revolution, and they would have been defeated if they had. These much-abused German liberals of the 1860s, these men of studious habits, these readers of philosophical treatises, these lovers of music and poetry, understood very well why the upheaval of 1848 had failed. They knew that they could not establish popular government within a nation, where many millions were still caught in the bonds of superstition, boorishness, and illiteracy. The political problem was essentially a problem of education. The final success of liberalism and democracy was beyond doubt. The trend toward parliamentary rule was irresistible. But the victory of liberalism could be achieved only when those strata of the population from which the king drew his reliable soldiers should have become enlightened and thereby transformed into supporters of liberal ideas. Then the king would be forced to surrender, and the parliament would obtain supremacy without bloodshed. The liberals were resolved to spare the German people, whenever possible, the horrors of revolution and civil war. They were confident that in a not-too-distant future, they themselves would get full control of Prussia. They only had to wait. Number 5. The Little German Program the Prussian progressives did not fight in the constitutional conflict for the destruction or weakening of the Prussian army. They realized that under the circumstances Germany was in need of a strong army for the defense of its independence. They wanted to wrest the army from the king and to transform it into an instrument for the protection of German liberty. The issue of the conflict was whether the king or parliament should control the army. The aim of German liberalism was the replacement of the scandalous administration of the 30-odd German states by a unitary liberal government. Most of the liberals believed that this future German state must not include Austria. Austria was very different from other German-speaking countries. It had problems of its own which were foreign to the rest of the nation. These liberals could not help seeing Austria as the most dangerous obstacle to German freedom. The Austrian court was dominated by the Jesuits. Its government had concluded a concordat with Pius IX, the pope who ardently combated all modern ideas. But the Austrian emperor was not prepared to renounce voluntarily the position which his house had occupied for more than 400 years in Germany. The liberals wanted the Prussian army strong because they were afraid of Austrian hegemony, a new counter-reformation, and that re-establishment of the reactionary system of the late Prince Metternich. They aimed at a unitary government for all Germans outside of Austria and Switzerland. They therefore called themselves Little Germans, Kleindeutsch, as contrasted to the Great Germans, Grossdeutsch, who wanted to include those parts of Austria which had previously belonged to the Holy Empire. But there were, besides other considerations of foreign policy, to recommend an increase in the Prussian army. France was in those years ruled by an adventurer who was convinced that he could preserve his emperorship only by fresh military victories. In the first decade of his reign, he had already waged two bloody wars. Now it seemed to be Germany's turn. There was little doubt that Napoleon III toyed with the idea of annexing the left bank of the Rhine. 
who else could protect Germany but the Prussian army? Then there was one problem more. Schleswig-Holstein. The citizens of Holstein, of Laumburg, and of southern Schleswig bitterly opposed the rule of Denmark. The German liberals cared little for the sophisticated arguments of lawyers and diplomats concerning the claims of various pretenders to the succession in the Elba duchies. They did not believe in the doctrine that the question of who should rule a country must be decided according to the provisions of feudal law and of century-old family compacts. They supported the Western principle of self-determination. The people of these duchies were reluctant to acquiesce in the sovereignty of a man whose only title was that he had married a princess with a disputed claim to the succession in Schleswig and no right at all to the succession in Holstein. They aimed at autonomy within the German Confederation. This fact alone seemed important in the eyes of the liberals. Why should these Germans be denied what the British, the French, the Belgians, and the Italians had got? But as the King of Denmark was not ready to renounce his claims, this question could not be solved without a recourse to arms. It would be a mistake to judge all these problems from the point of view of later events. Bismarck freed Schleswig-Holstein from the yoke of its Danish oppressors, only in order to annex it to Prussia. And he annexed not only southern Schleswig, but northern Schleswig as well, whose population desired to remain in the Danish kingdom. Napoleon III did not attack Germany. It was Bismarck who kindled the war against France. Nobody foresaw this outcome in the early 60s. At that time, everybody in Europe, and in America too, deemed the Emperor of France the foremost peace-breaker and aggressor. The sympathies which the German longing for unity encountered abroad were to a great extent due to the conviction that a united Germany would counterbalance France and thus make Europe safe for peace. The little Germans were also misled by their religious prejudices. Like most of the liberals, they thought of Protestantism as the first step on the way from medieval darkness to enlightenment. They feared Austria because it was Catholic. They preferred Prussia because the majority of its population was Protestant. In spite of all experience, they hoped that Prussia was more open to liberal ideas than Austria. Political conditions in Austria, to be sure, were in those critical years unsatisfactory. But later events have proved that Protestantism is no more a safeguard of freedom than Catholicism. The idea of liberalism is the complete separation of church and state, and tolerance without any regard to differences among the churches. But this error also was not limited to Germany. The French liberals were so deluded that they at first hailed the Prussian victory at Königgratz, Sadova. Only on second thought did they realize that Austria's defeat spelled the doom of France too, and they raised, too late, the battle cry, Revanche pour Sadova. Königgratz was at any rate a crushing defeat for German liberalism. The liberals were aware of the fact that they had lost the campaign. They were nevertheless full of hope. They were firmly resolved to proceed with their fight in the new parliament of northern Germany. This fight, they felt, must end with the victory of liberalism and the defeat of absolutism. The moment when the king would no longer be able to use his army against the people seemed to come closer every day. Number 6. The LaSalle Episode it would be possible to deal with a Prussian constitutional conflict without even mentioning the name of Ferdinand LaSalle. LaSalle's intervention did not influence the course of events, but it foreboded something new. It was the dawn of the forces which were destined to mold the fate of Germany and of Western civilization. While the Prussian progressives were involved in their struggle for freedom, LaSalle attacked them bitterly and passionately. He tried to incite the workers to withdraw their sympathies from the progressives. 
he complained the gospel of class war. The progressives, as representative of the bourgeoisie, he held were the mortal foes of labor. You should not fight the state, but the exploiting classes. The state is your friend. Of course, not the state governed by Herr von Bismarck, but the state controlled by me, LaSalle. LaSalle was not on the payroll of Bismarck, as some people suspected. Nobody could bribe LaSalle. Only after his death did some of his former friends take government money. But as both Bismarck and LaSalle assailed the progressives, they became virtual allies. LaSalle very soon approached Bismarck. The two used to meet clandestinely. Only many years later was the secret of these relations revealed. It is vain to discuss whether an open and lasting cooperation between these two ambitious men would have resulted if LaSalle had not died very shortly after these meetings from a wound received in a duel, August 31, 1864. They both aimed at supreme power in Germany. Neither Bismarck nor LaSalle was ready to renounce his claim to the first place. Bismarck and his military and aristocratic friends hated the liberals so thoroughly that they would have been ready to help the socialists get control of the country if they themselves had proven too weak to preserve their own rule. But they were, for the time being, strong enough to keep a tight rein on the progressives. They did not need LaSalle's support. It is not true that LaSalle gave Bismarck the idea that revolutionary socialism was a powerful ally in the fight against liberalism. Bismarck had long believed that the lower classes were better royalists than the middle classes. Besides, as Prussian minister in Paris, he had had opportunity to observe the working of Caesarism. Perhaps his predilection towards universal and equal suffrage was strengthened by his conversations with LaSalle. But for the moment, he had no use for LaSalle's cooperation. The latter's party was still too small to be considered important. At the death of LaSalle, the Allemagne Deutsche Arbeiterverein had not much more than 4,000 members. LaSalle's agitation did not hinder the activities of the progressives. It was a nuisance to them, not an obstacle. Neither had they anything to learn from his doctrines. That Prussia's parliament was only a sham, and that the army was the main stronghold of Prussia's absolutism was not new to them. It was exactly because they knew it that they fought in the great conflict. LaSalle's brief demagogical career is noteworthy because for the first time in Germany, the ideas of socialism and editism appeared on the political scene, as opposed to liberalism and freedom. LaSalle was not himself a Nazi, but he was the most eminent forerunner of Nazism and the first German who aimed at the Fuhrer position. He rejected all the values of enlightenment and of liberal philosophy, but not as the romantic eulogists of the Middle Ages and of royal legitimism did. He negated them, but he promised at the same time to realize them in a fuller and broader sense. Liberalism, he asserted, aims at spurious freedom, but I will bring you true freedom, and true freedom means the omnipotence of government. It is not the police who are the foes of liberty, but the bourgeoisie. And it was LaSalle who spoke the words which characterize best the spirit of the age to come. The state is God. Section 2. The Triumph of Militarism Part 1. The Prussian Army in the New German Empire In the late afternoon of September 1, 1870, King William I, surrounded by a pompous staff of princes and generals, was looking down from a hill south of the Meuse at the battle in progress when an officer brought the news that the capitulation of Napoleon III and his whole army was imminent. Then Moltke turned to Count Falkenberg, who, like himself, was a member of the Parliament of Northern Germany, and remarked, Well, dear colleague, what happened today settles our military problem for a long time. 
and Bismarck shook hands with the highest of the German princes, the heir to the throne of Württemberg, and said, This day safeguards and strengthens the German princes and the principles of conservatism. In the hour of overwhelming victory, these were the first reactions of Prussia's two foremost statesmen. They triumphed because they had defeated liberalism. They did not care a whit for the catchwords of the official propaganda, conquest of the hereditary foe, safeguarding the nation's frontiers, historical mission of the House of Hohenzollern and of Prussia, unification of Germany, Germany foremost in the world. The princes had overthrown their own people. This alone seemed important to them. In the new German Reich, the emperor, not in his position as emperor but in his position as king of Prussia, had full control of the Prussian army. Special agreements which Prussia, not the Reich, had concluded with 23 of the other 24 member states of the Reich, incorporated the armed forces of these states into the Prussian army. Only the Royal Bavarian Army retained some limited peacetime independence, but in the event of war it too was subject to full control by the emperor. The provisions concerning recruiting and the length of active military service had to be fixed by the Reichstag. Parliamentary consent was required, moreover, for the budgetary allowance for the army. But the parliament had no influence over the management of military affairs. The army was the army of the king of Prussia, not of the people or the parliament. The emperor and king was supreme warlord and commander-in-chief. The chief of the great general staff was the Kaiser's first assistant in the conduct of operations. The army was an institution not within but above the apparatus of civil administration. Every military commander had the right and the duty to interfere whenever he felt that the working of the non-military administration was unsatisfactory. He had to account for his interference to the emperor only. Once in 1913, a case of such military interference, which had occurred in Zabern, led to a violent debate in Parliament, but Parliament had no jurisdiction over the matter, and the army triumphed. The reliability of this army was unquestionable. No one could doubt that all parts of the forces could be used to quell rebellions and revolutions. The mere suggestion that a detachment could refuse to obey an order, or that men of the reserve when called to active duty might stay out, would have been considered an absurdity. The German nation had changed in a very remarkable way. We shall consider later the essence and cause of this great transformation. The main political problem of the 50s and early 60s, the problem of the reliability of the soldiers, had vanished. All German soldiers were now unconditionally loyal to the supreme warlord. The army was an instrument which the Kaiser could trust. Tactful persons were judicious enough not to point out explicitly that this army was ready to be used against a potential domestic foe. But to William II, such inhibitions were strange. He openly told his recruits that it was their duty to fire upon their fathers, mothers, brothers, or sisters if he ordered them to do so. Such speeches were criticized in the liberal press, but the liberals were powerless. The allegiance of the soldiers was absolute. It no longer depended on the length of active service. The army itself proposed in 1892 that the infantry returned to two years of active duty only. In the discussion of this bill in Parliament and in the press, there was no longer any question of the political reliability of the soldiers. Everybody knew that the army was now without any regard to the length of active service, non-political and non-partisan, i.e. a docile and manageable tool in the hands of the emperor. The government and the Reichstag quarreled continuously about military affairs. 
but considerations of the usefulness of the forces for the preservation of the hardly disguised imperial despotism did not play any role at all. The army was so strong and reliable that a revolutionary attempt could be crushed within a few hours. Nobody in the Reich wanted to start a revolution. The spirit of resistance and rebellion had faded. The Reichstag would have been prepared to consent to any expenditure for the army proposed by the government if the problem of raising the necessary funds had not been difficult to solve. In the end, the army and navy always got the money that the general staff asked for. To the increase of the armed forces, financial considerations were a smaller obstacle than the shortage of the supply of men, whom the generals considered eligible for commissions on active duty. With the expansion of the armed forces, it had long become impossible to give commissions to noblemen only. The number of non-aristocratic officers steadily grew. But the generals were not ready to admit into the ranks of commissioned officers on active duty any but those commoners of good and wealthy families. Applicants of this type were available only in limited numbers. Most of the sons of the upper middle class preferred other careers. They were not eager to become professional officers and to be treated with disdain by their aristocratic colleagues. Both the Reichstag and the liberal press time and again criticized the government's military policy, also from the technical point of view. The general staff was strongly opposed to such civilian interference. They deny to everybody but the army any comprehension of military problems. Even Hans Delbruck, the eminent historian of warfare and author of excellent strategical dissertations, was for them only a layman. Officers in retirement who contributed to the opposition press were called biased partisans. Public opinion at last acknowledged the general staff's claim to infallibility, and all critics were silenced. Events of World War I proved, of course, that these critics had a better grasp of military methods than the specialists of the general staff. Part 2. German Militarism The political system of the new German Empire has been called militarism. The characteristic feature of militarism is not the fact that a nation has a powerful army or navy. It is the paramount role assigned to the army within the political structure. Even in peacetime, the army is supreme. It is the predominant factor in political life. The subjects must obey the government as soldiers must obey their superiors. Within a militarist community, there is no freedom. There are only obedience and discipline. The size of the armed forces is not in itself the determining factor. Some Latin American countries are militarist, although their armies are small, poorly equipped, and unable to defend the country against a foreign invasion. On the other hand, France and Great Britain were at the end of the 19th century non-militarist, although their military and naval armaments were very strong. Militarism should not be confused with despotism enforced by a foreign army. Austria's rule in Italy, backed by Austrian regiments composed of non-Italians, and the Tsar's rule in Poland, safeguarded by Russian soldiers, were such systems of despotism. It has already been mentioned that in the 50s and early 60s of the past century, conditions in Prussia were analogous. But it was different with the German Empire founded on the battlefields of Koningratz and of Sedan. This empire did not employ foreign soldiers. It was not preserved by bayonets, but by the almost unanimous consent of its subjects. The nation approved of the system, and therefore the soldiers were loyal too. The people acquiesced in the leadership of the state because they deemed such a system fair, expedient, and useful for them. There were, of course, some objectors, but they were few and powerless. The deficiency in this system was its monarchical leadership. 
the successors of Frederick II were not fit for the task assigned to them. William I had found in Bismarck an ingenious chancellor. Bismarck was a high-spirited and well-educated man, a brilliant speaker, and an excellent stylist. He was a skillful diplomat and in every respect surpassed most of the German nobility. But his vision was limited. He was familiar with country life, with the primitive agricultural methods of Prussian junkers, with the patriarchal conditions of the eastern provinces of Prussia, and the life at the courts of Berlin and St. Petersburg. In Paris, he met the society of Napoleon's court. He had no idea of French intellectual trends. He knew little about German trade and industry and the mentality of businessmen and professional people. He kept out of the way of scientists, scholars, and artists. His political credo was the old-fashioned loyalty of a king's vassal. In September 1849, he told his wife, Don't disparage the king. We are both guilty of this fault. Even if he errs and blunders, we should not speak of him otherwise than as of our parents, since we have sworn fidelity and allegiance to him and his house. Such an opinion is appropriate for a royal chamberlain, but it does not suit the omnipotent prime minister of a great empire. Bismarck foresaw the evils with which the personality of William II threatened the nation. He was in a good position to become acquainted with the character of the young prince, but entangled in his notions of loyalty and allegiance, he was unable to do anything to prevent disaster. People are now unfair to William II. He was not equal to his task. But he was not worse than the average of his contemporaries. It was not his fault that the monarchical principle of succession made him emperor and king, and that, as German emperor and king of Prussia, he had to be an autocrat. It was not the man that failed, but the system. If William II had been king of Great Britain, it would not have been possible for him to commit the serious blunders that he could not avoid as king of Prussia. It was due to the frailty of the system that the toadies whom he appointed generals and ministers were incompetent. You may say it was bad luck, for Bismarck and the elder Moltke too were courtiers. Though the victorious field marshal had served with the army as a young officer, a good deal of his career was spent in attendance at court. He was, among other things, for many years the attendant of a royal prince who lived in sickness and seclusion in Rome and died there. William II had many human weaknesses, but it was precisely the qualities that discredited him with prudent people which rendered him popular with the majority of his nation. His crude ignorance of political issues made him congenial to his subjects, who were as ignorant as he was, and shared his prejudices and illusions. Within a modern state, hereditary monarchy can work satisfactorily only when there is parliamentary democracy. Absolutism, and still more, disguised absolutism with a phantom constitution and a powerless parliament, requires qualities in the ruler that no mortal man can ever meet. William II failed like Nicholas II, and even earlier the Bourbons. Absolutism was not abolished, it simply collapsed. The breakdown of autocracy was due not only to the fact that the monarchs lacked intellectual ability, Autocratic government of a modern great nation burdens the ruler with a quantity of work beyond the capacity of any man. In the 18th century, Frederick William I and Frederick II could still perform all the administrative business with a few hours of daily work. They had enough leisure left for their hobbies and for pleasure. Their successors were not only less gifted, they were less diligent too. From the days of Frederick William II, it was no longer the king who ruled but his favorites. The king was surrounded by a host of intriguing gentlemen and ladies. Whoever succeeded best in these rivalries and plots got control of the government until another sycophant supplanted him.
The Camarilla was supreme in the army too. Frederick William I had himself organized the forces. His son had commanded them personally in great campaigns. Herein too, their successors proved inadequate. They were poor organizers and incompetent generals. The chief of the great general staff, who nominally was merely the king's assistant, became virtually commander-in-chief. The change remained for a long time unnoticed. As late as the War of 1866, many high-ranking generals were still not aware of the fact that the orders they had to obey did not emanate from the king, but from General von Moltke. Frederick II owed his military successes to a great extent to the fact that the Austrian, French, and Russian armies that he fought were not commanded by their sovereigns but by generals. Frederick concentrated in his hands the whole military, political, and economic strength of his, of course, comparatively small, realm. He alone gave orders. The commanders of the armies of his adversaries had only limited powers. Their position was rendered difficult by the fact that their duties kept them at a distance from the courts of their sovereigns. While they stayed with their armies in the field, their rivals continued to intrigue at the court. Frederick could venture daring operations of which the outcome was uncertain. He did not have to account for his actions to anybody but himself. The enemy generals were always in fear of their monarch's disfavor. They aimed at sharing the responsibility with others in order to exculpate themselves in case of failure. They would call their subordinate generals for a council of war and look for justification to its resolutions. When they got definite orders from the sovereign, which were suggested to him either by a council of war deliberating far away from the field of operations, or by one of several of the host of lazy intrigants, they felt comfortable. They executed the order even when they were convinced that it was inexpedient. Frederick was fully aware of the advantage that the concentration of undivided responsibility in one commander offered. He never called a council of war. He again and again forbade his generals, even under penalty of death, to call one. In a council of war, he said, the more timid party always predominates. A council of war is full of anxiety because it is too matter-of-fact. This doctrine became, like all opinions of King Frederick, a dogma for the Prussian army. It roused the elder Moltke's anger when somebody said that King William had called a council of war in his campaigns. The king, he declared, would listen to the proposals of his chief of staff and then decide. It had always happened that way. In practice, this principle resulted in the absolute command of the chief of the great general staff, whom, of course, the king appointed. Not William I, but Helmuth von Mulkey led the armies in the campaigns of 1866 and 1870-71. William II used to declare that in case of war he would personally command his armies, and that he needed a chief of staff only in peacetime. But when the First World War broke out, this boasting was forgotten. Helmuth von Mulke's nephew, a courtier without any military knowledge or ability, timid and irresolute, sick and nervous, and adept of the doubtful theosophy of Rudolf Steiner, led the German army into the debacle at the Marne. Then he collapsed. The minister of war, Erich von Falkenhayn, filled the gap spontaneously, and the Kaiser in apathy gave his consent. Very soon, Ludendorff began to plot against Falkenhayn. Cleverly organized machinations forced the emperor in 1916 to replace Falkenhayn by Hindenburg. But the real commander-in-chief was now Ludendorff, who nominally was only Hindenburg's first assistant. The German nation, biased by the doctrines of militarism, did not realize that it was the system that had failed. They used to say, we lacked only the right men, if Schleifen had not died too soon. A legend was composed about the personality of this late chief of staff. 
His sound plan had been ineptly put into execution by his incompetent successor. If only the two army corps which Moltke had uselessly dispatched to the Russian border had been available at the Marne. Naturally, the Reichstag, too, was considered guilty. There was no mention of the fact that the parliament had never earnestly resisted the government's proposals concerning allocations for the army. Lieutenant Colonel Hench, in particular, was made the scapegoat. This officer, it was asserted, had transgressed his powers. Perhaps he was a traitor. But if Hench was really responsible for the order to retreat, then he would have to be deemed the man who saved the German army from annihilation through encirclement of its right wing. The fable that but for the interference of Hench, the Germans would have been victorious at the Marne, can easily be disposed of. There is no doubt that the commanders of the German army and navy were not equal to their task. But the shortcomings of the generals and admirals, and likewise those of the ministers and diplomats, must be charged to the system. A system that puts incapable men at the top is a bad system. There is no telling whether Schleifen would have been more successful. He never had the opportunity to command troops in action. He died before the war. But one thing is sure, the parliamentary armies of France and Great Britain got at that time commanders who led them to victory. The army of the King of Prussia was not so fortunate. In accordance with the doctrines of militarism, the chief of the great general staff considered himself the first servant of the emperor and king and demanded the chancellor's subordination. These claims had already led to conflicts between Bismarck and Moltke. Bismarck asked that the supreme commander should adjust his conduct to considerations of foreign policy. Moltke bluntly rejected such pretensions. The conflict remained unresolved. In the First World War, the supreme commander became omnipotent. The chancellor was in effect degraded to a lower rank. The Kaiser had retained ceremonial and social functions only. Hindenburg, his chief of staff, was a man of straw. Ludendorff, the first quartermaster general, became virtually omnipotent dictator. He might have remained in this position all his life if Folk had not defeated him. This evolution demonstrates clearly the impracticability of hereditary absolutism. Monarchical absolutism results in the rule of a major domo, of a shogun, or of a duce. Part 3. The Liberals and Militarism The lower chamber of the Prussian parliament, the Abgordnettenhaus, was based on universal franchise. The citizens of every constituency were divided into three classes, each of which chose the same number of electors for the final poll by which the parliamentary representative of the constituency was elected. The first class was formed of those adult male residents who paid the highest taxes and together contributed one-third of the total amount of taxes collected in the district. The second class of those who together contributed the second-third and the third class of those who together contributed the third-third. Thus, the wealthier citizens had a better franchise than the poorer ones of their constituency. The middle classes predominated in the ballot. For the Reichstag of the Northern German Federation and later for that of the Reich, no such discrimination was applied. Every adult male cast his vote directly on the ballot, which returned the representative of the constituency. Franchise was not only universal, but equal and direct. Thus, the poorer strata of the nation got more political influence. It was the aim of both Bismarck and LaSalle to weaken by this electoral system the power of the Liberal Party. The Liberals were fully aware that the new method of voting would for some time sap their parliamentary strength. But they were not concerned about that. They realized that the victory of liberalism could be achieved only by an effort of the whole nation. What was important was not to have a majority of liberals within the chamber, 
but to have a liberal majority among the people and thereby in the army. In the Prussian Abgordnettenhaus, the progressives outnumbered the friends of the government. Nevertheless, liberalism was powerless, since the king could still trust in the allegiance of the greater part of the army. What was needed was to bring into the ranks of liberalism those backward ignorant masses whose political indifference was the safeguard of absolutism. Only then would the day of popular government and democracy dawn. The liberals, therefore, did not fear that the new electoral system would postpone or seriously imperil their inexorable final victory. The outlook for the immediate future was not very comforting, but the ultimate prospects were excellent. One had only to look at France. In that country, too, an autocrat had founded his despotism upon the loyalty of the army and upon universal and equal franchise. But now the Caesar was crushed and democracy had triumphed. The liberals did not greatly fear socialism. The socialists had achieved some success, but it could be expected that reasonable workers would soon discover the impracticability of socialist utopias. Why should the wage earners whose standard of living was daily improving be deluded by demagogues who, as rumors whispered, were on the payroll of Bismarck? Only later did the liberals become aware of the change taking place in the nation's mentality. For many years they believed that it was only a temporary setback a short reactionary incident which was doomed to disappear very soon. For them, every supporter of the new ideologies was either misguided or a renegade. But the numbers of these apostates increased. The youth no longer joined the Liberal Party. The old fighters for liberalism grew tired. With every new election campaign, their ranks became thinner. With every year, the reactionary system which they hated became more powerful. Some faithful men still clung to the ideas of liberty and democracy gallantly fighting against the united assaults on liberalism from the right and from the left. But they were a forlorn squad. Among those born after the Battle of Koningratz, almost nobody joined the party of liberalism. The liberals died out. The new generation did not even know the meaning of the word. Part 4. The Current Explanation of the Success of Militarism all over the world, the overwhelming victory of German militarism is interpreted in accordance with the legends developed by the propaganda of the German Social Democrats. The socialists assert that the German bourgeoisie seceded from the principles of freedom and thus betrayed the people. Based on Marxian historical materialism, absurd theories concerning the essence and the development of imperialism were invented. Capitalism, they say, must result in militarism, imperialism, bloody wars, fascism, and Nazism. Finance and big business have brought civilization to the verge of destruction. Marxism has the task of saving humanity. Such interpretations fail to solve the problem. Indeed, they try purposely to put it out of sight. In the early 1860s, there were in Germany, among the politically minded, a few supporters of dynastic absolutism of militarism, and of authoritarian government, who strongly opposed the transition to liberalism, democracy, and popular government. This minority consisted mainly of the princes and their courtiers, the nobility, the commissioned officers of higher ranks, and some civil servants. But the great majority of the bourgeoisie, of the intellectuals, and of the politically-minded members of the poorer strata of the population were decidedly liberal and aimed at parliamentary government, according to the British pattern. The liberals believed that political education would progress quickly. They were convinced that every citizen who gave up political indifference and became familiar with political issues would support their stand on constitutional questions. They were fully aware that some of these newly politicized men would not join their ranks. 
it was to be expected that Catholics, Poles, Danes, and Alsatians would form their own parties. But these parties would not support the king's pretensions. Catholics and non-Germans were bound to favor parliamentarism in a predominantly Protestant and German Reich. The politicization of the whole country went on faster than the liberals had foreseen. At the end of the 70s, the whole people was inspired by political interests, even passions, and ardently took part in political activities. But the consequences differed radically from those expected by the liberals. The Reichstag did not earnestly challenge the hardly disguised absolutism. It did not raise the constitutional issue. It indulged only in idle talk. And, much more important, the soldiers who now were recruited from a completely politicized nation became so unconditionally reliable that every doubt concerning their readiness to fight for absolutism against a domestic foe was considered an absurdity. The questions to be answered are not, why did the bankers and the rich entrepreneurs and capitalists desert liberalism? Why did the professors, the doctors, and the lawyers not erect barricades? We must rather ask, why did the German nation return to the Reichstag members who did not abolish absolutism? Why was the army, formed for a great part of men who voted the socialist or the Catholic ticket, unconditionally loyal to its commanders? Why would the anti-liberal parties, foremost among them the Social Democrats, collect many millions of votes, while the groups which remained faithful to the principles of liberalism lost more and more popular support? Why did the millions of socialist voters who indulged in revolutionary babble acquiesce in the rule of princes and courts? To say that big business had some reasons to support the Hohenzollern absolutism, or that the Hanseatic merchants and shipowners sympathized with the increase of the navy, is no satisfactory answer to these questions. The great majority of the German nation consisted of wage earners and salaried people, of artisans and shopkeepers, and of small farmers. These men determined the outcome of elections, their representatives sat in Parliament, and they filled the ranks of the army. Attempts to explain the change in the German people's mentality by demonstrating that the class interests of the wealthy bourgeoisie caused them to become reactionary are nonsensical. Whether they are as childish as the steel plate legend, or as sophisticated as the Marxian theories concerning imperialism. Part 2. Nationalism Section 3. Etaism Part 1. The New Mentality The most important event in the history of the last hundred years is the displacement of liberalism by Etaism. Etaism appears in two forms, socialism and interventionism. Both have in common the goal of subordinating the individual unconditionally to the state, the social apparatus of compulsion and coercion. Etaism, too, like liberalism in earlier days, originated in Western Europe and only later came into Germany. It has been asserted that autochthonous German roots of Etaism could be found in Fichte's Socialist Utopia and in the sociological teachings of Schelling and Hegel. However, the dissertations of these philosophers were so foreign to the problems and tasks of social and economic policies that they could not directly influence political matters. What use could practical politics derive from Hegel's assertion? The state is the actuality of the ethical idea. It is ethical mind qua the substantial will manifest and reveal to itself, knowing and thinking itself, accomplishing what it knows and insofar as it knows it. Or from his dictum, the state is absolutely rational inasmuch as it is the actuality of the substantial will which it possesses in the particular self-consciousness, once that consciousness has been raised to consciousness of its universality. Ataism assigns to the state the task of guiding the citizens and of holding them in tutelage. It aims at restricting the individual's freedom to act. 
It seeks to mold his destiny into Vestal Initiative in the government alone. It came into Germany from the West. St. Simon, Owen, Fourier, Pecour, Sismondi, Auguste Comte laid its foundations. Lorenz von Stein was the first author to bring the Germans comprehensive information concerning these new doctrines. The appearance in 1842 of the first edition of this book, Socialism and Communism in Present-Day France, was the most important event in pre-Marxian German socialism. The elements of government interference with business, labor legislation, and trade unionism also reached Germany from the West. In America, Frederick List became familiar with the protectionist theories of Alexander Hamilton. Liberalism had taught the German intellectuals to absorb Western political ideas with reverential awe. Now they thought liberalism was already outstripped, government interference with business had replaced old-fashioned liberal orthodoxy, and would inexorably result in socialism. He who did not want to appear backward had to become social, i.e. either interventionist or socialist. New ideas succeed only after some lapse of time. Years have to pass before they reach the broader strata of intellectuals. List's National System of Political Economy was published in 1841, a few months before Stein's book. In 1847, Marx and Engels produced the Communist Manifesto. In the middle 60s, the prestige of liberalism began to melt away. Very soon, the economic, philosophical, historical, and juridical university lectures were representing liberalism in caricature. The social scientists outdid each other in emotional criticism of British free trade and laissez-faire. The philosophers disparaged the stock-jobber ethics of utilitarianism, the superficiality of enlightenment, and the negativity of the notion of liberty. The lawyers demonstrated the paradox of democratic and parliamentary institutions, and the historians dealt with the moral and political decay of France and of Great Britain. On the other hand, the students were taught to admire the social kingdom of the Hohenzollerns, from Frederick William I, the noble socialist, to William I, the great Kaiser of social security and labor legislation. The social democrats despised Western Pluto-democracy and pseudo-liberty, and ridiculed the teachings of bourgeois economics. The boring pedantry of the professors and the boastful oratory of the social democrats failed to impress critical people. The elite were conquered for etaism by other men. From England penetrated the ideas of Carlyle, Ruskin, and the Fabians. From France, solidarism. The churches of all creeds joined the choir. Novels and lays propagated the new doctrine of the state. Shaw and Wells, Spielhagen and Gerhard Hauptmann, and hosts of other writers less gifted, contributed to the popularity of Ataism. Part 2. The State The state is essentially an apparatus of compulsion and coercion. The characteristic feature of its activities is to compel people through the application or the threat of force to behave otherwise than they would like to behave. But not every apparatus of compulsion and coercion is called a state, only one which is powerful enough to maintain its existence for some time at least by its own force is commonly called a state. A gang of robbers, which because of the comparative weakness of its forces, has no prospect of successfully resisting for any length of time the forces of another organization, is not entitled to be called state. The state will either smash or tolerate a gang. In the first case, the gang is not a state because its independence lasts for a short time only. In the second case, it is not a state because it does not stand on its own might. The pogrom gangs in Imperial Russia were not a state because they could kill and plunder only thanks to the connivance of the government. This restriction of the notion of the state leads directly to the concepts of state territory and sovereignty. Standing on its own power implies that there is a space on the Earth's surface where the operation of the apparatus is not restricted by the intervention of another organization. 
This space is the state's territory. Sovereignty, suprema potestas, supreme power, signifies that the organization stands on its own legs. A state without territory is an empty concept. A state without sovereignty is a contradiction in terms. The total complex of the rules according to which those at the helm employ compulsion and coercion is called law. Yet the characteristic feature of the state is not these rules, as such, but the application or threat of violence. A state whose chiefs recognize but one rule to do whatever seems at the moment to be expedient in their eyes is a state without law. It does not make any difference whether or not these tyrants are benevolent. The term law is used in a second meaning too. We call international law the complex of agreements which sovereign states have concluded expressly or tacitly in regard to their mutual relations. It is not, however, essential to the statehood of an organization that other states should recognize its existence through the conclusion of such agreements. It is the fact of sovereignty within a territory that is essential, not the formalities. The people handling the state machinery may take over other functions, duties, and activities. The government may own and operate schools, railroads, hospitals, and orphan asylums. Such activities are only incidental to the conception of a state. Whatever other functions it may assume, the state is always characterized by the compulsion and coercion exercised. With human nature as it is, the state is a necessary and indispensable institution. The state is, if properly administered, the foundation of society, of human cooperation and civilization. It is the most beneficial and most useful instrument in the endeavors of men to promote human happiness and welfare. But it is a tool and a means only, not the ultimate goal. It is not God, it is simply compulsion and coercion, it is the police power. It has been necessary to dwell upon these truisms because the mythologies and metaphysics of Etaism have succeeded in wrapping them in a mystery. The state is a human institution, not a superhuman being. He who says state means coercion and compulsion. He who says there should be a law concerning this matter means the armed men of the government should force people to do what they do not want to do or not to do what they like. He who says this law should be better enforced means the police should force people to obey this law. He who says the state is God deifies arms and prisons. The worship of the state is the worship of force. There is no more dangerous menace to civilization than a government of incompetence, corrupt, or vile men. The worst evils which mankind ever had to endure were inflicted by bad governments. The state can be and has often been in the course of history the main source of mischief and disaster. The apparatus of compulsion and coercion is always operated by mortal men. It has happened time and again that rulers have excelled their contemporaries and fellow citizens both in competence and in fairness. But there is ample historical evidence to the contrary too. The thesis of Ataism that the members of the government and its assistants are more intelligent than the people, and that they know better what is good for the individual than he himself knows, is pure nonsense. The Führers and the Duches are neither God nor God's vicars. The essential characteristic feature of state and government do not depend on their particular structure and constitution. They are present both in despotic and in democratic governments. Democracy, too, is not divine. We shall later deal with the benefits that society derives from democratic government. But great as these advantages are, it should never be forgotten that majorities are no less exposed to error and frustration than kings and dictators. That a fact is deemed true by the majority does not prove its truth. That a policy is deemed expedient by the majority does not prove its expediency. The individuals who form the majority are not gods, and their joint conclusions are not necessarily godlike. Part 3. The Political and Social Doctrines of Liberalism 
There is a school of thought which teaches that social cooperation of men could be achieved without compulsion or coercion. Anarchism believes that a social order could be established in which all men would recognize the advantages to be derived from cooperation and be prepared to do voluntarily everything which the maintenance of society requires and to renounce voluntarily all actions detrimental to society. But the anarchists overlook two facts. There are people whose mental abilities are so limited that they cannot grasp the full benefits that society brings to them. And there are people whose flesh is so weak that they cannot resist the temptation of striving for selfish advantage through actions detrimental to society. An anarchistic society would be exposed to the mercy of every individual. We may grant that every sane adult is endowed with the faculty of realizing the good of social cooperation and of acting accordingly. However, it is beyond doubt that there are infants, the aged, and the insane. We may agree that he who acts antisocially should be considered mentally sick and in need of care. But as long as not all are cured, and as long as there are infants and the senile, some provisions must be taken lest they destroy society. Liberalism differs radically from anarchism. It has nothing in common with the absurd illusions of the anarchists. We must emphasize this point because atheists sometimes try to discover a similarity. Liberalism is not so foolish as to aim at the abolition of the state. Liberals fully recognize that no social cooperation and no civilization could exist without some amount of compulsion and coercion. It is the task of government to protect the social system against the attacks of those who plan actions detrimental to its maintenance and operation. The essential teaching of liberalism is that social cooperation and the division of labor can be achieved only in a system of private ownership of the means of production, i.e. within a market society or capitalism. All the other principles of liberalism, democracy, personal freedom of the individual, freedom of speech, and of the press, religious tolerance, peace among the nations, are consequences of this basic postulate. They can be realized only within a society based on private property. From this point of view, liberalism assigns to the state the task of protecting the lives, health, freedom, and property of its subjects against violent or fraudulent aggression. That liberalism aims at private ownership of the means of production implies that it rejects public ownership of the means of production, i.e. socialism. Liberalism therefore objects to the socialization of the means of production. It is illogical to say, as many atheists do, that liberalism is hostile to or hates the state because it is opposed to the transfer of the ownership of railroads or cotton mills to the state. If a man says that sulfuric acid does not make a good hand lotion, he is not expressing hostility to sulfuric acid as such. He is simply giving his opinion concerning the limitations of its use. It is not the task of this study to determine whether the program of liberalism or that of socialism is more adequate for the realization of those aims which are common to all political and social endeavors, i.e. the achievement of human happiness and welfare. We are only tracing the role played by liberalism and by anti-liberalism, whether socialist or interventionist in the evolution which resulted in the establishment of totalitarianism. We can therefore content ourselves with briefly sketching the outlines of the social and political program of liberalism and its working. In an economic order based on private ownership of the means of production, the market is the focal point of the system. The working of the market mechanism forces capitalists and entrepreneurs to produce so as to satisfy the consumer's need, as well and cheaply as the quantity and quality of material resources, and of manpower available, and the state of technological knowledge allow. If they are not equal to this task, if they produce poor goods, or at too great cost, or not the commodities that the consumers demand most urgently, they suffer losses. 
Unless they change their methods to satisfy the consumer's needs better, they will finally be thrown out of their positions as capitalists and entrepreneurs. Other people who know better how to serve the consumer will replace them. Within the market society, the working of the price mechanism makes the consumer supreme. They determine through the prices they pay and through the amount of their purchases both the quantity and quality of production. They determine directly the prices of consumers' goods and thereby indirectly the prices of all material factors of production and the wages of all hands employed. Within the market society, each serves all his fellow citizens and each is served by them. It is a system of mutual exchange of services and commodities, a mutual giving and receiving. In that endless rotating mechanism, the entrepreneurs and capitalists are the servants of the consumers. The consumers are the masters, to whose whims the entrepreneurs and the capitalists must adjust to their investments and methods of production. The market chooses the entrepreneurs and the capitalists, and removes them as soon as they prove failures. The market is a democracy in which every penny gives a right to vote and where voting is repeated every day. Outside of the market stands the social apparatus of compulsion and coercion and its steersman, the government. To state and government, the duty is assigned of maintaining peace both at home and abroad. For only in peace can the economic system achieve its ends, the fullest satisfaction of human needs and wants. But who should command the apparatus of compulsion and coercion? In other words, who should rule? It is one of the fundamental insights of liberal thought that government is based on opinion and that therefore in the long run it cannot subsist if the men who form it and the methods they apply are not accepted by the majority of those ruled. If the conduct of political affairs does not suit them, the citizens will finally succeed in overthrowing the government by violent action and in replacing the rulers by men deemed more competent. The rulers are always a minority. They cannot stay in office if the majority is determined to turn them out. Revolution and civil war are the ultimate remedy for unpopular rule. For the sake of domestic peace, liberalism aims at democratic government. Democracy is therefore not a revolutionary institution. On the contrary, it is the very means of preventing revolutions. Democracy is a system providing for the peaceful adjustment of government to the will of the majority. When the men in office and their methods no longer please the majority of the nation, they will, in the next election, be eliminated and replaced by other men in another system. Democracy aims at safeguarding peace within the country and among the citizens. The goal of liberalism is the peaceful cooperation of all men. It aims at peace among nations too. When there is private ownership of the means of production everywhere and when the laws, the tribunals, and the administration treat foreigners and citizens on equal terms, it is of little importance where a country's frontiers are drawn. Nobody can derive any profit from conquest, but many can suffer losses from fighting. War no longer pays. There is no motive for aggression. The population of every territory is free to determine to which state it wishes to belong or whether it prefers to establish a state of its own. All nations can coexist peacefully because no nation is concerned about the size of its state. This is, of course, a very cool and dispassionate plea for peace and democracy. It is the outcome of a utilitarian philosophy. It is as far from the mystical mythology of the divine right of kings as it is from the metaphysics of natural law or the natural and imprescriptible rights of men. It is founded upon considerations of common utility. Freedom, democracy, peace, and private property are deemed good because they are the best means for promoting human happiness and welfare. Liberalism wants to secure to men a life free from fear and want. That is all. About the middle of the 19th century, liberals were convinced that they were on the eve of the realization of their plans. It was an illusion. Part 4. Socialism 
Socialism aims at a social system based on public ownership of the means of production. In a socialist community, all material resources are owned and operated by the government. This implies that the government is the only employer and that no one can consume more than the government allots to him. The term state socialist is pleonastic. Socialism is necessarily always state socialism. Planning is nowadays a popular synonym for socialism. Until 1917, communism and socialism were usually used as synonyms. The fundamental document of Marxian socialism, which all socialist parties united in the different international working men's associations, consider and still consider the eternal and unalterable gospel of socialism, is entitled the Communist Manifesto. Since the ascendancy of Russian Bolshevism, most people differentiate between communism and socialism. But this differentiation refers only to political tactics. Present-day communists and socialists disagree only in respect to the methods to be applied for the achievement of ends, which are common to both. The German Marxian socialists called their party the Social Democrats. It was believed that socialism was compatible with democratic government. Indeed, that the program of democracy could be fully realized only within a socialist community. In Western Europe and in America, this opinion is still current. In spite of all the experience which events since 1917 have provided, many cling stubbornly to the belief that true democracy and true socialism are identical. Russia, the classical country of dictatorial oppression, is considered democratic because it is socialist. However, the Marxians' love of democratic institutions was a stratagem only, a pious rod for the deception of the masses. Within a socialist community, there is no room left for freedom. There can be no freedom of the press where the government owns every printing office. There can be no free choice of profession or trade where the government is the only employer and assigns everyone to the task he must fulfill. There can be no freedom to settle where one chooses when the government has the power to fix one's place of work. There can be no real freedom of scientific research where the government owns all the libraries, archives, and laboratories and has the right to send anyone to a place where he cannot continue his investigations. There can be no freedom in art and literature where the government determines who shall create them. There can be neither freedom of conscience nor of speech where the government has the power to remove any opponent to a climate which is detrimental to his health or to assign him duties which surpass his strength and ruin him both physically and intellectually. In a socialist community, the individual citizen can have no more freedom than a soldier in the army or an inmate in an orphanage. But, object the socialists, the socialist commonwealth differs in this essential respect from such organizations. The inhabitants have the right to choose the government. They forget, however, that the right to vote becomes a sham in a socialist state. The citizens have no sources of information but those provided by the government. The press, the radio, and the meeting halls are in the hands of the administration. No party of opposition can be organized or can propagate its ideas. We have only to look to Russia or Germany to discover the true meaning of elections and plebiscites under socialism. The conduct of economic affairs by a socialist government cannot be checked by the vote of parliamentary bodies or by the control of the citizens. Economic enterprises and investments are designed for long periods. They require many years for preparation and realization. Their fruits ripen late. If a penal law has been promulgated in May, it can be repealed without harm or loss in October. If a minister of foreign affairs has been appointed, he can be discharged a few months later. But if industrial investments have been once started, it is necessary to cling to the undertaking until it is achieved and to exploit the plant erected as long as it seems profitable. To change the original plan would be wasteful. 
This necessarily implies that the personnel of the government cannot be easily disposed of. Those who made the plan must execute it. They must later operate the plans erected because others cannot take over the responsibility for their proper management. People who once agree to the famous four- and five-year plans virtually abandon their right to change the system and the personnel of government, not only for the duration of four or five years, but for the following years too, in which the planned investments have to be utilized. Consequently, a socialist government must stay in office for an indefinite period. It is no longer the executor of the nation's will. It cannot be discharged without sensible detriment if its actions no longer suit the people. It has irrevocable powers. It becomes an authority above the people. It thinks and acts for the community in its own right and does not tolerate interference with its own business by outsiders. The entrepreneur in a capitalist society depends upon the market and upon consumers. He has to obey the orders which the consumers transmit to him by their buying or failure to buy, and the mandate with which they have charged him can be revoked at any hour. Every entrepreneur and every owner of means of production must daily justify his social function through subservience to the wants of the consumers. The management of a socialist economy is not under the necessity of adjusting itself to the operation of a market. It has an absolute monopoly. It does not depend on the wants of the consumers. It itself decides what must be done. It does not serve the consumers as the businessman does. It provides for them as the father provides for his children or the headmaster of a school for the students. It is the authority bestowing favors, not a businessman eager to attract customers. The salesman thanks the customer for patronizing his shop and asks him to come again. But the socialists say, be grateful to Hitler, render thanks to Stalin, be nice and submissive, then the great men will be kind to you later too. The prime means of democratic control of the administration is the budget. Not a clerk may be appointed, not a pencil bought, if Parliament has not made an allotment. The government must account for every penny spent. It is unlawful to exceed the allotment or to spend it for other purposes than those fixed by Parliament. Such restrictions are impracticable for the management of plants, mines, farms, and transportation systems. Their expenditure must be adjusted to the changing conditions of the moment. You cannot fix in advance how much is to be spent to clear fields of weeds or to remove snow from railroad tracks. This must be decided on the spot according to circumstances. Budget control by the people's representatives, the most effective weapon of democratic government, disappears in a socialist state. Thus, socialism must lead to the dissolution of democracy. The sovereignty of the consumers and the democracy of the market are the characteristic features of the capitalist system. Their corollary in the realm of politics is the people's sovereignty and democratic control of government. Pareto, George Sorel, Lenin, Hitler, and Mussolini were right in denouncing democracy as a capitalist method. Every step which leads from capitalism toward planning is necessarily a step nearer to absolutism and dictatorship. The advocates of socialism who are keen enough to realize this tell us that liberty and democracy are worthless for the masses. People, they say, want food and shelter. They are ready to renounce freedom and self-determination to obtain more and better bread by submitting to a competent paternal authority. To this, the old liberals used to reply that socialism will not improve, but, on the contrary, will impair the standard of living of the masses. For socialism is a less efficient system of production than capitalism. But this rejoinder also failed to silence the champions of socialism. Granted, many of them reply that socialism may not result in riches for all, but rather in a smaller production of wealth, 
Nevertheless, the masses will be happier under socialism because they will share their worries with all their fellow citizens, and there will not be wealthier classes to be envied by poorer ones. The starving and ragged workers of Soviet Russia, they tell us, are a thousand times more joyful than the workers of the West who live under conditions which are luxurious compared to Russian standards. Equality in poverty is a more satisfactory state than well-being, where there are people who can flaunt more luxuries than the average man. Such debates are vain because they miss the central point. It is useless to discuss the alleged advantages of socialist management. Complete socialism is simply impracticable. It is not at all a system of production. It results in chaos and frustration. The fundamental problem of socialism is the problem of economic calculation. Production within a system of division of labor and thereby social cooperation requires method for the computation of expenditures asked for by different, thinkable, and possible ways of achieving ends. In capitalist society, market prices are the units of this calculation. But within a system where all factors of production are owned by the state, there is no market, and consequently there are no prices for these factors. Thus it becomes impossible for the managers of a socialist community to calculate. They cannot know whether what they are planning and achieving is reasonable or not. They have no means of finding out which of the various methods of production under consideration is the most advantageous. They cannot find a genuine basis of comparison between quantities of different material factors of production and of different services. So they cannot compare the outlays necessary with the anticipated outputs. Such comparisons need a common unit, and there is no such unit available but that provided by the price system of the market. The socialist managers cannot know whether the construction of a new railroad line is more advantageous than the construction of a new motor road. And if they have once decided on the construction of a railroad, they cannot know which of many possible routes it should cover. Under a system of private ownership, money calculations are used to solve such problems. But no such calculation is possible by comparing various classes of expenditures and incomes in kind. It is out of the question to reduce to a common unit the quantities of various kinds of skilled and unskilled labor, iron, coal, building materials of different types, machinery, and everything else that the building, the upkeep, and the operation of railroads necessitates. But without such a common unit, it is impossible to make these plans the subject of economic calculations. Planning requires that all the commodities and services which we have to take into account can be reduced to money. The management of a socialist community would be in a position like that of a ship captain who had to cross the ocean with the stars shrouded by a fog and without the aid of a compass or other equipment of nautical orientation. Socialism as a universal mode of production is impracticable because it is impossible to make economic calculations within a socialist system. The choice for mankind is not between two economic systems, it is between capitalism and chaos. Part 5. Socialism in Russia and in Germany The attempts of the Russian Bolsheviks and of the German Nazis to transform socialism from a program into reality have not had to meet the problem of economic calculation under socialism. These two socialist systems have been working within a world, the greater part of which still clings to a market economy. The rulers of these socialist states base the calculations on which they make their decisions on the prices established abroad. Without the help of these prices, their actions would be aimless and planless. Only insofar as they refer to this price system are they able to calculate, keep books, and prepare their war plans. With this fact in mind, we may agree with the statement of various socialist authors and politicians that socialism in only one or a few countries is not yet true socialism. Of course, these men attach a quite different meaning to their assertions. 
They are trying to say that the full blessings of socialism can be reaped only in a world-embracing socialist community. The rest of us, on the contrary, must recognize that socialism will result in complete chaos, precisely if it is applied in the greater part of the world. The German and the Russian systems of socialism have in common the fact that the government has full control of the means of production. It decides what shall be produced and how. It allots to each individual a share of consumers' goods for his consumption. These systems would not have to be called socialist if it were otherwise. But there is a difference between the two systems, though it does not concern the essential features of socialism. The Russian pattern of socialism is purely bureaucratic. All economic enterprises are departments of the government, like the administration of the army or the postal system. Every plant, shop, or farm stands in the same relation to the superior central organization, as does a post office to the office of the postmaster general. The German pattern differs from the Russian one in that it, seemingly and nominally, maintains private ownership of the means of production and keeps the appearance of ordinary prices, wages, and markets. There are, however, no longer entrepreneurs but only shop managers. Betriebsführer. These shop managers do the buying and selling, pay the workers, contract debts, and pay interest and amortization. There is no labor market. Wages and salaries are fixed by the government. The government tells the shop managers what and how to produce, at what prices, and from whom to buy, at what prices and whom to sell. The government decrees to whom and under what terms the capitalists must entrust their funds, and where and at what wages laborers must work. Market exchange is only a sham. All the prices, wages, and interest rates are fixed by the central authority. They are prices, wages, and interest rates in appearance only. In reality, they are merely determinations of quantity relations in the government's orders. The government, not the consumers, directs production. This is socialism in the outward guise of capitalism. Some labels of capitalistic market economy are retained, but they mean something entirely different from what they mean in a genuine market economy. The execution of the pattern in each country is not so rigid as not to allow for some concessions to the other pattern. There are in Germany, too, plants and shops directly managed by government clerks. There is especially the national railroad system. There are the government's coal mines and the national telegraph and telephone lines. Most of these institutions are remnants of the nationalization carried out by the previous governments under the regime of German militarism. In Russia, on the other hand, there are some seemingly independent shops and farms left, but these exceptions do not alter the general characteristics of the two systems. It is not an accident that Russia adopted the bureaucratic pattern and Germany the Zwangswirtschaft pattern. Russia is the largest country in the world and is thinly inhabited. Within its borders, it has the richest resources. It is much better endowed by nature than any other country. It can, without too great harm to the well-being of its population, renounce foreign trade and live in economic self-sufficiency. But for the obstacles which Tsarism first put in the way of capitalist production, and for the later shortcomings of the Bolshevik system, the Russians, even without foreign trade, could have long enjoyed the highest standard of living in the world. In such a country, the application of the bureaucratic system of production is not impossible, provided the management is in a position to use for economic calculation the prices fixed on the markets of foreign capitalist countries, and to apply the techniques developed by the enterprise of foreign capitalism. Under these circumstances, socialism results not in complete chaos, but only in extreme poverty. A few years ago in the Ukraine, the most fertile land of Europe, many millions literally died of starvation. 
In a predominantly industrial country, conditions are different. The characteristic feature of a predominantly industrial country is that its population must live to a great extent on imported food and imported raw materials. It must pay for these imports by the export of manufactured goods, which it produces mainly from imported raw materials. Its vital strength lies in its factories and in its foreign trade. Jeopardizing the efficiency of industrial production is equivalent to imperiling the basis of sustenance. If the plants produce worse or at higher cost, they cannot compete in the world market, where they must outdo commodities of foreign origin. If exports drop, imports of food and other necessities drop correspondingly. The nation loses its main source of living. Now, Germany is a predominantly industrial country. It did very well when, in the years preceding the First World War, its entrepreneurs steadily expanded their exports. There was no other country in Europe in which the standard of living of the masses improved faster than in Imperial Germany. For German socialism, there could be no question of imitating the Russian model. To have attempted this would have immediately destroyed the apparatus of German export trade. It would have suddenly plunged into misery a nation pampered by the achievements of capitalism. Bureaucrats cannot meet the competition of foreign markets. They flourish only where they are sheltered by the state, with its compulsion and coercion. Thus, the German socialists were forced to take recourse to the methods which they called German socialism. These methods, it is true, are much less efficient than that of private initiative, but they are much more efficient than the bureaucratic system of the Soviets. This German system has an additional advantage. The German capitalists and the Betriebsführer, the former entrepreneurs, do not believe in the eternity of the Nazi regime. They are, on the contrary, convinced that the rule of Hitler will collapse one day and that then they will be restored to the ownership of the plants which in pre-Nazi days were their property. They remember that in the First World War II, the Hindenburg program had virtually dispossessed them and that with the breakdown of the imperial government, they were de facto reinstated. They believe that it will happen again. They are therefore very careful in the operation of the plants whose nominal owners and shop managers they are. They do their best to prevent waste and to maintain the capital invested. It is only thanks to the selfish interests of the Betriebsführer that German socialism secured an adequate production of armaments, planes, and ships. Socialism would be impracticable altogether if established as a worldwide system of production and thus deprived of the possibility of making economic calculations. When confined to one or a few countries in the midst of a world capitalist economy, it is only an inefficient system. And of the two patterns for its realization, the German is less inefficient than the Russian one. Part 6. Interventionism All civilizations have up to now been based on private ownership of the means of production. In the past, civilization and private ownership have been linked together. If history could teach us anything, it would be that private property is inextricably linked with civilization. Governments have always looked askance at private property. Governments are never liberal from inclination. It is in the nature of the men handling the apparatus of compulsion and coercion to overate its power to work and to strive at subduing all spheres of human life to its immediate influence. Editism is the occupational disease of rulers, warriors, and civil servants. Governments become liberal only when forced to by the citizens. From time immemorial, governments have been eager to interfere with the working of the market mechanism. Their endeavors have never attained the end sought. People used to attribute these failures to the inefficacy of the measures applied and to the leniency of their enforcement. What was wanted, they thought, was more energy and more brutality. Then success would be assured. 
Not until the 18th century did men begin to understand that interventionism is necessarily doomed to fail. The classical economists demonstrated that each constellation of the market has a corresponding price structure. Prices, wages, and interest rates are the result of the interplay of demand and supply. There are forces operating in the market which tend to restore this natural state if it is disturbed. Government decrees, instead of achieving the particular ends they seek, tend only to derange the working of the market and imperil the satisfaction of the needs of the consumers. In defiance of economic science, the very popular doctrine of modern interventionism asserts that there is a system of economic cooperation, feasible as a permanent form of economic organization, which is neither capitalism nor socialism. This third system is conceived as an order based on private ownership of the means of production, in which, however, the government intervenes by orders and prohibitions in the exercise of ownership rights. It is claimed that this system of interventionism is as far from socialism as it is from capitalism, that it stands midway between socialism and capitalism, and that while retaining the advantages of both, it escapes the disadvantages inherent in each of them. Such are the pretensions of interventionism as advocated by the older German school of etatism, by the American institutionalists, and by many groups in other countries. Interventionism is practiced, except for socialist countries like Russia and Nazi Germany, by every contemporary government. The outstanding examples of interventionist policies are the Sozialpolitik of Imperial Germany and the New Deal policy of present-day America. Marxians do not support interventionism. They recognize the correctness of the teachings of economics concerning the frustration of interventionist measures. Insofar as some Marxian doctrinaires have recommended interventionism, they have done so because they consider it an instrument for paralyzing and destroying the capitalist economy, and hope thereby to accelerate the coming of socialism. But the consistent orthodox Marxians scorn interventionism as idle reformists detrimental to the interests of the proletarians. They do not expect to bring about the socialist utopia by hampering the evolution of capitalism. On the contrary, they believe that only a full development of the productive forces of capitalism can result in socialism. Consistent Marxians abstain from doing anything to interfere with what they deem to be the natural evolution of capitalism. But consistency is a very rare quality among Marxians. So most Marxian parties and the trade unions operated by Marxians are enthusiastic in their support of interventionism. A mixture of capitalist and socialist principles is not feasible. If, within a society based on private ownership of the means of production, some of these means are publicly owned and operated, this does not make for a mixed system which combines socialism and capitalism. The enterprises owned and operated by the state or by municipalities do not alter the characteristic features of a market economy. They must fit themselves as buyers of raw materials, of equipment, and of labor, and as sellers of goods and services, into the scheme of the market economy. They are subject to the laws determining production for the needs of consumers. They must strive for profits or at least to avoid losses. When the government tries to eliminate or to mitigate this dependence by covering the losses of its plants and shops by drawing on the public funds, the only result is that this dependence is shifted to another field. The means for covering the losses must be raised by the imposition of taxes. But this taxation has its effect on the market. It is the working of the market mechanism and not the government collecting the taxes that decides upon whom the incidence of the taxes falls and how it affects production and consumption. The market, not the government, determines the working of those publicly operated enterprises. Nor should interventionism be confused with the German pattern of socialism. 
It is the essential feature of interventionism that it does not aim at a total abolition of the market. It does not want to reduce private ownership to a sham and the entrepreneurs to the status of shop managers. The interventionist government does not want to do away with private enterprise. It wants only to regulate its working through isolated measures of interference. Such measures are not designed as cogs in an all-around system of orders and prohibitions destined to control the whole apparatus of production and distribution. They do not aim at replacing private ownership and a market economy by socialist planning. In order to grasp the meaning and the effects of interventionism, it is sufficient to study the working of the two most important types of intervention, interference by restriction and interference by price control. Interference by restriction aims directly at a diversion of production from the channels prescribed by the market and the consumers. The government either forbids the manufacture of certain goods or the application of certain methods of production, or makes such methods more difficult by the imposition of taxes or penalties. It thus eliminates some of the means available for the satisfaction of human needs. The best-known examples are import duties and other trade barriers. It is obvious that all such measures make the people as a whole poorer, not richer. They prevent men from using their knowledge and ability, their labor and material resources as efficiently as they can. In the unhampered market, forces are at work tending to utilize every means of production in a way that provides for the highest satisfaction of human wants. The interference of the government brings about a different employment of resources and thereby impairs the supply. We do not need to ask here whether some restrictive measures could not be justified, in spite of the diminution of supply they cause, by advantages in other fields. We do not need to discuss the problem of whether the disadvantage of raising the price of bread by an import duty on wheat is outweighed by the increase in income of domestic farmers. It is enough for our purpose to realize that restrictive measures cannot be considered as measures of increasing wealth and welfare, but are instead expenditures. They are, like subsidies which the government pays out of the revenue collected by taxing the citizens, not measures of production policy, but measures of spending. They are not parts of a system of creating wealth, but a method of consuming it. The aim of price control is to decree prices, wages, and interest rates different from those fixed by the market. Let us first consider the case of maximum prices where the government tries to enforce prices lower than the market prices. The prices set on the unhampered market correspond to an equilibrium of demand and supply. Everybody who is ready to pay the market price can buy as much as he wants to buy. Everybody who is ready to sell at the market price can sell as much as he wants to sell. If the government, without a corresponding increase in the quantity of goods available for sale, decrees that buying and selling must be done at a lower price, and thus makes it illegal either to ask or to pay the potential market price, then this equilibrium can no longer prevail. With unchanged supply, there are now more potential buyers on the market, namely those who could not afford the higher market price but are prepared to buy at the lower official rate. There are now potential buyers who cannot buy, although they are ready to pay the fixed price by the government or even a higher price. The price is no longer the means of segregating those potential buyers who may buy from those who may not. A different principle of selection has come into operation. Those who come first can buy, others are too late in the field. The visible outcome of this state of things is the sight of housewives and children standing in long lines before the groceries, a spectacle familiar to everybody who has visited Europe in this age of price control. If the government does not want only those to buy who come first or who are personal friends of the salesman, while others go home empty-handed, it must regulate the distribution of the stocks available. It has to introduce some kind of rationing. But price ceilings not only fail to increase the supply, they reduce it. 
Thus, they do not attain the ends which the authorities wish. On the contrary, they result in a state of things which, from the point of view of the government and of public opinion, is even less desirable than the previous state which they had intended to alter. If the government wants to make it possible for the poor to give their children more milk, it has to buy the milk at the market price and sell it to these poor parents with a loss at a cheaper rate. The loss may be covered by taxation. But if the government simply fixes the price of milk at a lower rate than the market, the result will be the contrary of what it wants. The marginal producers, those with the highest costs, will, in order to avoid losses, go out of the business of producing and selling milk. They will use their cows and their skill for other more profitable purposes. They will, for example, produce cheese, butter, or meat. There will be less milk available for the consumers, not more. Then the government has to choose between two alternatives, either to refrain from any endeavors to control the price of milk and to abrogate its decree, or to add to its first measure a second one. In the latter case, it must fix the prices of the factors of production necessary for the production of milk at such a rate that the marginal producers will no longer suffer losses and will abstain from restricting the output. But then the same problem repeats itself on a remoter plane. The supply of the factors of production necessary for the production of milk drops, and again the government is back where it started, facing failure in its interference. If it keeps stubbornly on pushing forward its schemes, it has to go still further. It has to fix the prices of the factors of production necessary for the production of those factors of production, which are needed for the production of milk. Thus, the government is forced to go further and further, fixing the prices of all consumer goods and of all factors of production, both human, i.e. labor, and material, and to force every entrepreneur and every worker to continue work at these prices and wages. No branch of industry can be omitted from this all-round fixing of prices and wages and from this general order to produce those quantities which the government wants to see produced. If some branches were to be left free, the result would be a shifting of capital and labor to them and a corresponding fall of the supply of goods whose prices the government has fixed. However, it is precisely these goods which the government considers especially important for the satisfaction of the needs of the masses. But when this state of all-round control of business is achieved, the market economy has been replaced by the German pattern of socialist planning. The government's board of production management now exclusively controls all business activities and decides how the means of production, men and material resources, must be used. The isolated measures of price fixing fail to attain the end sought. In fact, they produce efforts contrary to those aimed at by the government. If the government, in order to eliminate these inexorable and unwelcome consequences, pursues its course further and further, it finally transforms the system of capitalism and free enterprise into socialism. Many American and British supporters of price control are fascinated by the alleged success of Nazi price control. They believe that the German experience has proved the practicability of price control within the framework of a system of market economy. You have only to be as energetic, impetuous, and brutal as the Nazis are, they think, and you will succeed. These men who want to fight Nazism by adopting its methods do not see that what the Nazis have achieved has been the building up of a system of socialism, not a reform of conditions within a system of market economy. There is no third system between a market economy and socialism. Mankind has to choose between those two systems unless chaos is considered an alternative. It is the same when the government takes recourse to minimum prices. Practically, the most important case of fixing prices at a higher level than that established on the unhampered market is the case of minimum wages. In some countries, minimum wage rates are decreed directly by the government. 
The governments of other countries interfere only indirectly with wages. They give a free hand to the labor unions by acquiescing in the use of compulsion and coercion by unions against reluctant employers and employees. If it were otherwise, strikes would not attain the ends which the trade unions want to attain. The strike would fail to force the employer to grant higher wages than those fixed by the unhampered market, if he were free to employ men to take the place of the strikers. The essence of labor union policy today is the application or threat of violence under the benevolent protection of the government. The unions represent, therefore, a vital part of the state apparatus of compulsion and coercion. Their fixing of minimum wage rates is equivalent to a government intervention establishing minimum wages. The labor union succeeded in forcing the entrepreneurs to grant higher wages. But the result of their endeavors is not what people usually ascribe to them. The artificially elevated wage rates cause permanent unemployment of a considerable part of the potential labor force. At these higher rates, the marginal employments for labor are no longer profitable. The entrepreneurs are forced to restrict output, and the demand on the labor market drops. The unions seldom bother about this inevitable result of their activities. They are not concerned with the fate of those who are not members of their brotherhood. But it is different for the government, which aims at the increase of the welfare of the whole people and wants to benefit not only union members, but all those who have lost their jobs. The government wants to raise the income of all workers. That a great many of them cannot find employment is contrary to its intentions. These dismal effects of minimum wages have become more and more apparent the more trade unionism has prevailed. As long as only one part of labor, mostly skilled workers, was unionized, the wage rise achieved by the unions did not lead to unemployment, but to an increased supply of labor in those branches of business where there were no efficient unions or no unions at all. The workers who lost their jobs as a consequence of union policy entered the market of the free branches and caused wages to drop in those branches. The corollary of the rise in wages for organized workers was a drop in wages for unorganized workers. But with the spread of unionism, conditions have changed. Workers now losing their jobs in one branch of industry find it harder to get employment in other lines. They are victimized. There is unemployment even in the absence of any government or union interference. But in an unhampered labor market, there prevails a tendency to make unemployment disappear. The fact that the unemployed are looking for jobs must result in fixing wage rates at a height, which makes it possible for the entrepreneurs to employ all those eager to work and to earn wages. But if minimum wage rates prevent an adjustment of wage rates to the conditions of demand and supply, unemployment tends to become a permanent mass phenomenon. There is but one means to make market wage rates rise for all those eager to work an increase in the amount of capital goods available, which makes it possible to improve technological methods of production and thereby to raise the marginal productivity of labor. It is a sad fact that a great war in destroying a part of the stock of capital goods must result in a temporary fall in real wage rates when the shortage of manpower brought about by the enlistment of millions of men is once overcome. It is precisely because they are fully aware of this undesirable consequence that liberals consider war not only a political but also an economic disaster. Government spending is not an appropriate means to brush away unemployment. If the government finances its spending by collecting taxes or by borrowing from the public, it curtails the private citizen's power to invest and to spend to the same extent that it increases its own spending capacity. If the government finances its spending by inflationary methods, issue of additional paper money or borrowing from the commercial banks, it brings about a general rise of commodity prices. 
If then money wage rates do not rise at all, or not to the same extent as commodity prices, mass unemployment may disappear. But it disappears precisely because real wage rates have dropped. Technological progress increases the productivity of human effort. The same amount of capital and labor can now produce more than before. A surplus of capital and labor becomes available for the expansion of already existing industries and for the development of new ones. Technological unemployment may occur as a transitory phenomenon, but very soon the unemployed will find new jobs either in the new industries or in the expanding old ones. Many millions of workers are today employed in industries which were created in the last decades, and the wage earners themselves are the main buyers of the products of these new industries. There is but one remedy for lasting unemployment of great masses: the abandonment of the policy of raising wage rates by government decree or by the application or the threat of violence. Those who advocate interventionism because they want to sabotage capitalism and thereby finally to achieve socialism are at least consistent. They know what they are aiming at, but those who do not wish to replace private property by German Zwangschwertschaft or Russian Bolshevism are sadly mistaken in recommending price control and labor union compulsion. The more cautious and sophisticated supporters of interventionism are keen enough to recognize that government interference with business fails in the long run to attain the ends sought, but they assert what is needed is immediate action, a short-run policy. Interventionism is good because its immediate effects are beneficial, even if its remoter consequences may be disastrous. Do not bother about tomorrow; only today counts. With regard to this attitude, two points must be emphasized. Number one: Today, after years and decades of interventionist policies, we are already confronted with the long-run consequences of interventionism. Number two: Wage interventionism is bound to fail even in the short run if not accompanied by corresponding measures of protectionism. Part seven: Etatism and protectionism. Etatism, whether interventionism or socialism, is a national policy. The national governments of various countries adopt it. Their concern is whatever they consider favors the interests of their own nations. They are not troubled about the fate or the happiness of foreigners. They are free from any inhibitions which would prevent them from inflicting harm on aliens. We have dealt already with how the policies of atheism hurt the well-being of the whole nation and even of the groups or classes which they are intended to benefit. For the purpose of this book, it is still more important to emphasize that no national system of atheism can work within a world of free trade. Atheism and free trade in international relations are incompatible, not only in the long run, but even in the short run. Atheism must be accompanied by measures severing the connections of the domestic market with foreign markets. Modern protectionism, with its tendency to make every country economically self-sufficient as far as possible, is inextricably linked with interventionism and its inherent tendency to turn into socialism. Economic nationalism is the unavoidable outcome of atheism. In the past, various doctrines and consideration induced governments to embark upon a policy of protectionism. Economics has exposed all these arguments as fallacious. Nobody tolerably familiar with economic theory dares today to defend these long since unmasked errors. They still play an important role in popular discussion. They are the preferred theme of demagogic fulminations, but they have nothing to do with present-day protectionism. Present-day protectionism is a necessary corollary of the domestic policy of government interference with business. Interventionism begets economic nationalism. It thus kindles the antagonisms resulting in war. An abandonment of economic nationalism is not feasible if nations cling to interference with business.
Free trade in international relations requires domestic free trade. This is fundamental to any understanding of contemporary international relations. It is obvious that all interventionist measures aiming at a rise in domestic prices for the benefit of domestic producers, and all measures whose immediate effect consists in a rise in domestic costs of production, would be frustrated if foreign products were not either barred altogether from competition on the domestic market or penalized when imported. When other things being unchanged, labor legislation succeeds in shortening the hours of work or in imposing on the employer in another way additional burdens to the advantage of the employees. The immediate effect is a rise in production costs. Foreign producers can compete under more favorable conditions, both on the home market and abroad, than they could before. The acknowledgement of this fact has long since given impetus to the idea of equalizing labor legislation in different countries. These plans have taken on more definite form since the international conference called by the German government in 1890. They led, finally, in 1919 to the establishment of the International Labor Office in Geneva. The results obtained were rather meager. The only efficient way to equalize labor conditions all over the world would be freedom of migration. But it is precisely this which unionized labor of the better endowed and comparatively underpopulated countries fights with every means available. The workers of those countries where national conditions of production are more favorable, and the population is comparatively thin, enjoy the advantages of a higher marginal productivity of labor. They get higher wages and have a higher standard of living. They are eager to protect their advantageous position by barring or restricting immigration. On the other hand, they denounce as dumping the competition of goods produced abroad by foreign labor, remunerated at a lower scale, and they ask for protection against the importation of such goods. The countries which are comparatively overpopulated, i.e. in which the marginal productivity of labor is lower than in other countries, have but one means to compete with the more favored countries, lower wages and a lower standard of living. Wage rates are lower in Hungary and in Poland than in Sweden or in Canada because the natural resources are poorer and the population is greater in respect to them. This fact cannot be disposed of by an international agreement or by the interference of an international labor office. The average standard of living is lower in Japan than in the United States because the same amount of labor produces less in Japan than in the United States. Such being the conditions, the goal of international agreements concerning labor legislation and trade union policies cannot be the equalization of wage rates, hours of work, or other such pro-labor measures. Their only aim could be to coordinate these things so that no changes in the previously prevailing conditions of competition resulted. If, for example, American laws or trade union policies resulted in a 5% rise in construction costs, it would be necessary to find out how much this increased cost of production in the various branches of industry in which America and Japan are competing or could compete if the relation of production costs changed. Then it would be necessary to investigate what kind of measures could burden Japanese production to such an extent that no change in the competitive power of both nations would take place. It is obvious that such calculations would be extremely difficult. Experts would disagree with regard both to the methods to be used and the probable results. But even if this were not the case, an agreement could not be reached. For it is contrary to the interest of Japanese workers to adopt such measures of compensation. It would be more advantageous for them to expand their export sales to the disadvantage of American exports. Thus, the demand for their labor would rise and the condition of Japanese workers improve effectively. Guided by this idea, Japan would be ready to minimize the rise in production costs affected by the American measures and would be reluctant to adopt compensatory measures. 
It is chimerical to expect that international agreements concerning socioeconomic policies could be substituted for protectionism. We must realize that practically every new pro-labor measure forced on employers results in higher costs of production, and thereby in a change in the conditions of competition. If it were not for protectionism, such measures would immediately fail to attain the end sought. They would result only in a restriction of domestic production and consequently in an increase of unemployment. The unemployed could find jobs only at lower wage rates. If they were not prepared to acquiesce in the solution, they would remain unemployed. Even narrow-minded people would realize that economic laws are inexorable and that government interference with business cannot attain its ends but must result in a state of affairs which, from the point of view of the government and the supporters of its policy, is even less desirable than the conditions which it was designed to alter. Protectionism, of course, cannot brush away the unavoidable consequences of interventionism. It can only improve conditions and appearance. It can only conceal the true state of affairs. Its aim is to raise domestic prices. The higher prices provide a compensation for the rise in costs of production. The worker does not suffer a cut in money wages, but he has to pay more for the goods he wants to buy. As far as the home market is concerned, the problem is seemingly settled. But this brings us to a new problem. Monopoly. Part 8. Economic Nationalism and Domestic Monopoly Prices The aim of the protective tariff is to undo the undesired consequences of the rise in domestic costs of production caused by government interference. The purpose is to preserve the competitive power of domestic industries in spite of the rising costs of production. However, the mere imposition of an import duty can attain this end only in the case of those commodities whose domestic production falls short of domestic demand. With industries producing more than is needed for domestic consumption, a tariff alone would be futile unless supplemented by monopoly. In an industrial European country, for example Germany, an import duty on wheat raises the domestic price to the level of the world market price plus the import duty. Although the rise in the domestic wheat price results in an expansion of domestic production on the one hand and a restriction of domestic consumption on the other hand, imports are still necessary for the satisfaction of domestic demand. As the costs of the marginal wheat dealer include both the world market price and the import duty, the domestic price goes up to this height. It is different with those commodities that Germany produces in such quantity that a part can be exported. A German import duty on manufacturers which Germany produces not only for the domestic market, but for export too would be, as far as export trade is concerned, a futile measure to compensate for a rise in domestic costs of production. It is true that it would prevent foreign manufacturers from selling on the German market. But export trade must continue to be hampered by the rise in domestic production costs. On the other hand, the competition between the domestic producers on the home market would eliminate those German plants in which production no longer paid with the rising costs due to government interference. At the new equilibrium, the domestic price would reach the level of the world's market price plus a part of the import duty. Domestic consumption would now be lower than it was before the rise in domestic production costs and the imposition of the import duty. The restriction of domestic consumption and the falling off of exports means a shrinking of production with consequent unemployment and an increased pressure on the labor market resulting in a drop in wage rates. The failure of the sociopolitic becomes manifest. But there is still another way out. The fact that the import duty has insulated the domestic market provides domestic producers with the opportunity to build up a monopolistic scheme. They can form a cartel and charge the domestic consumers monopoly prices, which can go up to a level only slightly lower than the world market price plus the import duty. With their domestic monopoly profits, they can afford to sell at lower prices abroad.
production goes on. The failure of the social politic is skillfully concealed from the eyes of an ignorant public. But the domestic consumers must pay higher prices. What the worker gains by the rise in wage rates and by pro-labor legislation burdens him in his capacity as consumer. But the government and the trade union leaders have attained their goal. They can then boast that the entrepreneurs were wrong in predicting that higher wages and more labor legislation would make their plants unprofitable and hamper production. Marxian myths have succeeded in surrounding the problem of monopoly with empty babble. According to the Marxian doctrines of imperialism, there prevails within an unhampered market society a tendency toward the establishment of monopolies. Monopoly, according to these doctrines, is an evil originating from the operation of the forces working in an unhampered capitalism. It is, in the eyes of the reformers, the worst of all drawbacks of the laissez-faire system. Its existence is the best justification of interventionism. It must be the foremost aim of government interference with business to fight it. One of the most serious consequences of monopoly is that it begets imperialism and war. There are, it is true, instances in which a monopoly, a world monopoly, of some products could possibly be established without the support of governmental compulsion and coercion. The fact that the natural resources for the production of mercury are very few, for example, might engender a monopoly even in the absence of governmental encouragement. There are instances, again, in which the high cost of transportation makes it possible to establish local monopolies for bulky goods, e.g. for some building materials in places unfavorably located. But this is not the problem with which most people are concerned when discussing monopoly. Almost all the monopolies that are assailed by public opinion and against which governments pretend to fight are government-made. They are national monopolies created under the shelter of import duties. They would collapse with a regime of free trade. The common treatment of the monopoly question is thoroughly mendacious and dishonest. No milder expression can be used to characterize it. It is the aim of the government to raise the domestic price of the commodities concerned above the world market level in order to safeguard in the short run the operation of its pro-labor policies. The highly developed manufacturers of Great Britain, the United States, and Germany would not need any protection against foreign competition were it not for the policies of their own governments in raising costs of domestic production. But these tariff policies, as shown in the case described above, can work only when there is cartel charging monopoly prices on the domestic market. In the absence of such a cartel, domestic production would drop as foreign producers would have the advantage of producing at lower costs than those due to the new pro-labor measure. A highly developed trade unionism supported by what is commonly called progressive labor legislation would be frustrated even in the short run if domestic prices were not maintained at a higher level than that of the world market, and if the exporters, if exports are to be continued, were not in a position to compensate the lower export prices out of the monopolistic profits drawn on the home market. Where the domestic cost of production is raised by government interference or by the coercion and compulsion exercised by trade unions, export trade will need to be subsidized. The subsidies may be openly granted as such by the government, or they may be disguised by monopoly. In this second case, the domestic consumers pay the subsidies in the form of higher prices for the commodities which the monopoly sells at a lower price abroad. If the government were sincere in its anti-monopolistic gestures, it could find a very simple remedy. The repeal of the import duty would brush away at one stroke the danger of monopoly. But governments and their friends are eager to raise domestic prices. Their struggle against monopoly is only a sham. The correctness of the statement that it is the aim of the governments to raise prices can easily be demonstrated by referring to conditions in which the imposition of an import duty does not result in the establishment of a cartel monopoly. 
The American farmers producing wheat, cotton, and other agricultural products cannot, for technical reasons, form a cartel. Therefore, the administration developed a scheme to raise prices through restriction of output and through withholding huge stocks from the market by means of government buying and government loans. The ends arrived at by this policy are a substitute for an infeasible farming cartel and farming monopoly. No less conspicuous are the endeavors of various governments to create international cartels. If the protective tariff results in the formation of a national cartel, international cartelization could in many cases be attained by agreements between the national cartels. Such agreements are often very well served by another pro-monopoly activity of governments, the patents and other privileges granted to new inventions. However, where technical obstacles prevent the construction of national cartels, it is almost always the case with agricultural production. No such international agreements can be built up. Then, the governments interfere again. History between the two world wars is an open record of state intervention to foster monopoly and restriction by international agreements. There were schemes for weed pools, rubber, and tin restrictions, and so on. Of course, most of them collapsed very quickly. Such is the true story of modern monopoly. It is not an outcome of unhampered capitalism and of an inherent trend of capitalist evolution, as the Marxians would have us believe. It is, on the contrary, the result of government policies aiming at a reform of market economy. Part 9. Autarky Interventionism aims at state control of market conditions. As the sovereignty of the national state is limited to the territory subject to its supremacy and has no jurisdiction outside its boundaries, it considers all kinds of international economic relations as serious obstacles to its policy. The ultimate goal of its foreign trade policy is economic self-sufficiency. The about tendency of this policy is, of course, only to reduce imports as far as possible, but as exports have no purpose but to pay for imports, they drop concomitantly. The striving after economic self-sufficiency is even more violent in the case of socialist governments. In a socialist community, production for domestic consumption is no longer directed by the tastes and wishes of the consumers. The Central Board of Production Management provides for the domestic consumer according to its own ideas of what serves him best. It takes care of the people, but it no longer serves the consumer. But it is different with production for export. Foreign buyers are not subject to the authorities of the socialist state. They have to be served. Their whims and fancies have to be taken into account. The socialist government is sovereign in purveying to the domestic consumers, but in its foreign trade relations, it encounters the sovereignty of the foreign consumer. On foreign markets, it has to compete with other producers producing better commodities at lower cost. We have mentioned earlier how the dependence on foreign imports and consequently on exports influences the whole structure of German socialism. The essential goal of socialist production, according to Marx, is the elimination of the market. As long as a socialist community is still forced to sell a part of its production abroad, whether to foreign socialist governments or to foreign business, it still produces for a market and is subject to the laws of the market economy. A socialist system is defective as such as long as it is not economically self-sufficient. The international division of labor is a more efficient system of production than is the economic autarky of every nation. The same amount of labor and of material factors of production yields a higher output. This surplus production benefits everyone concerned. Protectionism and autarky always result in shifting production from the centers where conditions are more favorable i.e. from where the output for the same amount of physical input is higher, to centers where they are less favorable. The more productive resources remain unused while the less productive are utilized. 
The effect is a general drop in the productivity of human effort, and thereby a lowering of the standard of living all over the world. The economic consequences of protectionist policies and of the trend toward autarky are the same for all countries. But there are qualitative and quantitative differences. The social and political results are different for comparatively overpopulated industrial countries and for comparatively underpopulated agricultural countries. In the predominantly industrial countries, the prices of the most urgently needed foodstuffs are going up. This interferes more and sooner with the well-being of the masses than the corresponding rise in the prices of manufactured goods in the predominantly agricultural countries. Besides, the workers in the industrial countries are in a better position to make their complaints heard than the farmers and farmhands in the agricultural countries. The statesmen and economists of the predominantly industrial countries become frightened. They realize that natural conditions are putting a check on their country's endeavors to replace imports of food and raw materials by domestic production. They clearly understand that the industrial countries of Europe can neither feed nor clothe their population out of domestic products alone. They foresee that the trend toward more protection, more insulation of every country, and finally self-sufficiency will bring about a tremendous fall in the standard of living, if not actual starvation. Thus, they look around for remedies. German aggressive nationalism is animated by these considerations. For more than 60 years, German nationalists have been depicting the consequences which the protectionist policies of other nations must eventually have for Germany. Germany, they pointed out, cannot live without importing food and raw materials. How will it pay for these imports when one day the nations producing these materials have succeeded in the development of their domestic manufactures and bar access to German exports? There is, they told themselves, only one redress. We must conquer more dwelling space, more Lebensraum. The German nationalists are fully aware that many other nations, for example Belgium, are in the same unfavorable position. But, they say, there is a very important difference. These are small nations. They are therefore helpless. Germany is strong enough to conquer more space. And happily for Germany, they say today, there are two other powerful nations which are in the same position as Germany, namely Italy and Japan. They are the natural allies of Germany in these wars of the have-nots against the haves. Germany does not aim at autarky because it is eager to wage war. It aims at war because it wants autarky, because it wants to live in economic self-sufficiency. Part 10 German Protectionism The Second German Empire, founded at Versailles in 1871, was not only a powerful nation. It was, in spite of the Depression which started in 1873, economically very prosperous. Its industrial plants were extremely successful in competing, abroad and at home, with foreign products. Some grumblers found fault with German manufacturers. German goods, they said, were cheap but inferior. But the great foreign demand was precisely for such cheap goods. The masses put more stress upon cheapness than upon fine quality. Whoever wanted to increase sales had to cut prices. In those optimistic 1870s, everybody was fully convinced that Europe was on the eve of a period of peace and prosperity. There were to be no more wars, trade barriers were doomed to disappear, men would be more eager to build up and to produce than to destroy and to kill each other. Of course, far-sighted men could not overlook the fact that Europe's cultural preeminence would slowly vanish. Natural conditions for production were more favorable in overseas countries. Capitalism was on the point of developing the resources of backward nations. Some branches of production would not be able to stand the competition of the newly opened areas. Agricultural production and mining would drop in Europe. Europeans would buy such goods by exporting manufacturers. But people did not worry. 
Intensification of the International Division of Labor was in their eyes not a disaster, but on the contrary a source of richer supply. Free trade was bound to make all nations more flourishing. The German liberals advocated free trade, the gold standard, and freedom of domestic business. German manufacturing did not need any protection. It triumphantly swept the world market. It would have been nonsensical to bring forward the infant industry argument. German industry had reached its maturity. Of course, there were still many countries eager to penalize imports. However, the interference from Ricardo's free trade argument was irrefutable. Even if all other countries cling to protection, every nation serves its own interest best by free trade. Not for the sake of foreigners, but for the sake of their own nation, the liberals advocated free trade. There was the great example set by Great Britain, and by some smaller nations like Switzerland. These countries did very well with free trade. Should Germany adopt their policies, or should it imitate half-barbarian nations like Russia? But Germany chose the second path. This decision was a turning point in modern history. There are many errors current concerning modern German protectionism. It is important to recognize, first of all, that the teachings of Frederick List have nothing to do with modern German protectionism. List did not advocate tariffs for agricultural products. He asked for protection of infant industries. In doing this, he underrated the competitive power of contemporary German manufacturing. Even in those days, in the early 1840s, German industrial production was already much stronger than List believed. Thirty to forty years later, it was paramount on the European continent and could very successfully compete on the world market. List's doctrines played an important role in the evolution of protectionism in Eastern Europe and in Latin America. But the German supporters of protectionism were not justified in referring to List. He did not unconditionally reject free trade. He advocated protection of manufacturing only for a period of transition. And he nowhere suggested protection for agriculture. List would have violently opposed the trend of German foreign trade policy of the last 65 years. The representative literary champion of modern German protectionism was Adolf Wagner. The essence of his teachings is this. All countries with an excess production of foodstuffs and raw materials are eager to develop domestic manufacturing and to bar access to foreign manufacturers. The world is on the way to economic self-sufficiency for each nation. In such a world, what will be the fate of those nations which can neither feed nor clothe their citizens out of domestic foodstuffs and raw materials? They are doomed to starvation. Adolf Wagner was not a keen mind. He was a poor economist. The same is true of his partisans, but they were not so dull as to fail to recognize that protection is not a panacea against the dangers which they depicted. The remedy they recommended was conquest of more space, war. They asked for protection of German agriculture in order to encourage production on the poor soil of the country, because they wanted to make Germany independent of foreign supplies of food for the impending war. Import duties for food were in the eyes a short-run remedy only, a measure for a period of transition. The ultimate remedy was war and conquest. It would be wrong, however, to assume that the incentive to Germany's embarking upon protectionism was a propensity to wage war. Wagner, Schmoller, and the other socialists of the chair, in their lectures and seminars, long preached the gospel of conquest. But before the end of the 90s, they did not dare to propagate such views in print. Considerations of war economy, moreover, could justify protection only for agriculture. They were not applicable in the case of protection for the processing industries. The military argument of war preparedness did not play an important role in the protection of Germany's industrial production. The main motive for the tariff on manufacturers was the social politic. 
The pro-labor policy raised the domestic costs of production and made it necessary to safeguard the policy's short-run effects. Domestic prices had to be raised above the world market level in order to escape the dilemma of either lower money wages or a restriction of exports and increase of unemployment. Every new progress of the social politic and every successful strike disarranged conditions to the disadvantage of the German enterprises and made it harder for them to outdo foreign competitors both on the domestic and on the foreign markets. The much-glorified social politic was only possible within an economic body sheltered by tariffs. Thus, Germany developed its characteristic system of cartels. The cartels charged the domestic consumers high prices and sold cheaper abroad. What the worker gained from labor legislation and union wages was absorbed by higher prices. The government and the trade union leaders boasted of the apparent success of their policies. The workers received higher money wages, but real wages did not rise more than the marginal productivity of labor. Only a few observers saw through all this, however. Some economists tried to justify industrial protectionism as a measure for safeguarding the fruits of social politic and of unionism. They advocated social protectionism, den sozialen schutzall. They failed to recognize that the whole process demonstrated the futility of coercive government and union interference with the conditions of labor. The greater part of public opinion did not suspect at all that social politic and protection were closely linked together. The trend toward cartels and monopoly was, in their opinion, one of the many disastrous consequences of capitalism. They bitterly indicted the greediness of capitalists. The Marxians interpreted as that concentration of capital which Marx had predicted. They purposely ignored the fact that it was not an outcome of the free evolution of capitalism, but the result of government interference, of tariffs, and, in the case of some branches, like potash and coal, of direct government compulsion. Some of the less shrewd socialists of the chair, Lucio Brentano, for example, went so far in their inconsistency as to advocate at the same time free trade and a more radical pro-labor policy. In the 30 years preceding the First World War, Germany could eclipse all other European countries in pro-labor policies because it, above all, indulged in protectionism and subsequently in cartelization. When later, in the course of the Depression of 1929 and the following years, Unemployment figures went up conspicuously because trade unions would not accept a reduction of boom wage rates. The comparatively mild tariff protectionism turned into the hyper-protectionist policies of the quota system, monetary devaluation, and foreign exchange control. At that time, Germany was no longer ahead in pro-labor policies. Other countries had surpassed it. Great Britain, once the champion of free trade, adopted the German idea of social protection. So did all other countries. Up-to-date hyper-protectionism is the corollary of present-day social politic. There cannot be any doubt that for nearly 60 years Germany set the example in Europe, both of social politic and of protectionism. But the problems involved are not Germany's problems alone. The most advanced countries of Europe have poor domestic resources. They are comparatively overpopulated. They are in a very unlucky position indeed in the present trend toward autarky migration barriers, and expropriation of foreign investments. Insulation means for them a severe fall in standards of living. After the present war, Great Britain, with its foreign assets gone, will be in the same position as Germany. The same will be true for Italy, Belgium, Switzerland. Perhaps France is better off because it has long had a low birth rate. But even the smaller, predominantly agricultural countries of the European East are in a critical position. How should they pay for imports of cotton, coffee, various minerals, and so on?
Their soil is much poorer than that of Canada or the American wheat belt. Its products cannot compete on the world market. Thus, the problem is not a German one. It is a European problem. It is a German problem only to the extent that the Germans tried, in vain, to solve it by war and conquest.